Hey everyone, it's Tommy. Welcome back to the Branching Factor podcast. Given that it is very close to the beginning of the holiday season, the rest of the team we've not been able to actually get together and record another episode for this month. Everyone is taking a much well-deserved break. However, here's me still doing my thing, still continuing to push out content. And so for this episode of Branching Factor, what I wanted to share with you was actually the live-streamed AI in Games Wrapped. So if you're not familiar, um, over uh, you know, Branching Factor as a podcast is something that I run alongside all of my other uh, content creation endeavours, uh, most notably AI in Games, which is my YouTube channel, uh, which has been running now for almost 10 years at this point, which is a little crazy. And uh, for the last few years, right before the end of the year, I tend to do like a sort of review and Q&A. And so for this year, we did uh, an interview or overview on the performance of the channel, as well as actually talking a little bit about the Branching Factor podcast and a kind of open Q&A and also discussing some of my favourite games of the year. And so, yeah, I'll just shut up and let you listen to me again, but in a recorded format. Thanks once again for continuing to uh, tune in and listen to us here on Branching Factor. And I'm looking forward to having myself and the rest of the gang uh, get into your ears once again early 2024. Take care. Hello everyone, welcome. It is the AI in Games 2023 wrap. It is our end of the year. Let's celebrate. Hope we're all having a good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Tommy Thompson. This is AI in Games. And this is a little bit of liquid courage to get me through it. Ah, there we go. We're all doing good. I'm quite enjoying. I've actually got Ben's music playing um, for this segment. I decided to change up how the stream runs because I have other music from Ben, but no one ever really gets to hear the full version of the credit music for every episode. So I was like, "Yeah, let's let's mix it up." <clears throat> but hey, we're here. We're doing it. Let's actually bring actually let's swap ben out so actually ben we're going to swap you from one to the other we're going to go into this music which is a little bit more chill a little bit less intense guitar but i hope you're all doing good this evening or this morning whatever you are in the world hope we're all doing good just noticing a whole bunch of folk are already in the chat waiting my apologies for having you hold up for so long and uh <clears throat> We've actually, hopefully we'll do more with Ben. Actually, I'm, I'm hanging out with Ben on Friday. I play board games with Ben. Um, we hang out, IRL. Uh, so yeah, um, but yes, welcome. Um, Alan, hey Alan, good to see you. I still haven't replied to your message, Alan, I'm sorry. I forgot you had an arcade cabinet in your living room. Okay, so fun things. Yes, this is an arcade cabinet. I actually got this when I moved into this new place. So this isn't, this is actually my office. This is... The, the lounge is a separate room in the house. Um, my partner and I have came to an agreement that I got to get all my crap out of the communal living spaces. So this is my um, office slash the guest bedroom of where we live. And yes, I bought my Marvel vs. Capcom 2 unit this year. I'm so happy I have it. Um, it is one of the arcade one-up machines, um, which is kind of neat. And uh, it has all of the CPS2 Marvel and Capcom fighting games on it. So X-Men Children of the Atom, Marvel Superheroes, 
X-Men v Street Fighter, Marvel v Street Fighter, Marvel v Capcom 1 and 2 on it. And I love it. It's so good because I just love those games. I keep meaning to mod the thing. Maybe I'll do that over the break. I've been meaning to mod it to add in all the other... Like, I want the Street Fighter Alpha games on it because they're my probably my favourite Street Fighter series ever. But I digress. We're here to talk about AI and games and we haven't done an episode yet on Street Fighter. But we will one day, I hope. Anyway, <clears throat> just checking. People are trickling in over on... Um, we got, we're actually cross-simucasting -sim on YouTube and Twitch at the same time, which is great. Happy Pie says, office by day, man cave by night. I mean, it's man cave by day, man cave by night. It's actually, it's 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 almost finished. We've got a few more lights need to be put in and a few other fixtures. But if anyone who was watching the streams earlier this year, <clears throat> uh, you'll note that this room has changed a lot in the last sort of eight, nine months as I was slowly getting everything together. Um, but very excited to be here tonight. This is our end of year review. And the whole point of this is we kind of look back on the YouTube series as a whole, talk about the ups and downs of producing the YouTube channel this year. I talk about what I have done. I talk about what I'm gonna do. I also give you a little bit of behind the scenes and show you stats and numbers that I think is actually useful to do. I think it's quite fun to kind of be transparent about this sort of thing. Um, I'll talk a little bit about what we've got planned for 2024. And I'll also talk about, I've actually decided to, to wrap in and amongst this my games of the year, uh, which I was going to do as a separate thing, but then I'm like, oh God, that's another thing to manage. And I'm actually going to seriously try and take a break. <clears throat> um, yes, the white light in the room, LB, makes this a lot less sinister because if you were here for the Doom streams a couple of nights ago, um, I had all these lights turn on because it's they're all smart lights or whatever so i was able to change them all into red color which we still need to try and finish the doom playthrough hopefully we can do that at the end of the week but yeah all right um i think i just need to double check i've got everything i need in all the right places and then after that we can get straight into the um the the festivities get straight into all the the numbers and all the details let me just quickly double check that i have got everything in that I wanted to get in. Actually, I think I might just keep the music in, but at a very low level when we actually do the um, the rest of it. So, but yeah, that's all good. I hope we're all having a good evening. <clears throat> I think most of us are wrapping up now for the holidays. Uh, I will officially be stopping everything uh, probably tomorrow or f Friday. Um, actually, we have one more episode of AI and Games, which I'm literally about to talk about, is coming out tomorrow. And that's the last video of the year. And um, yeah, so <clears throat> nearly there. I've also been in meetings again today. And uh, what the heck? Did I just, <laughs> I'm like just double checking something and it's like, did I just get more messages that I wasn't aware of? Um... Oh no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I thought it was another one. Phew. Because um, I had a couple of meetings today and then we're, we're wrapping everything up, but also I have a lot of projects getting kicked off for 2024, which is very exciting. Anyway, enough of this babbling. Let's get straight into it and start looking at our wrapped for 2023. Oh, look at that. It actually worked out perfectly. 
All right, so when I do this, historically what I've done is I talk a little bit about the channel and how things are going. This year has been an interesting mishmash because, of course, uh, for this year has been the first year in which AI and Games is essentially the front face of a business that I now run. I work for myself full time as a developer, consultant, professional trainer and much more. We'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff I've been doing behind the scenes later. But this year was an opportunity for me to use AI in games to do stuff that I wanted to do and also critically be allowed to do stuff um, to not feel burdened by what AI in games has to do. Uh, one of the... It's, it sounds like a weird thing to say it in, in that way, but um, AI in games has always been you know i've been trying to make it a self-sustaining thing and of course the thing is being a youtuber most of this isn't self-sustaining um any of you out there who make your own content i know alan you and i have had this conversation in private on multiple occasions that trying to make youtube and trying to do this is a very difficult thing to do trying to make it in a way that is sustainable for yourself both financially you know economically but also dealing with your physical and mental health and everything else that's quite difficult <clears throat> But this year, interestingly, I've done more stuff than I've ever done. And I'm kind of happy. It's been an experiment because I've found some things are working really well. Some things aren't working as well and we're going to rejig them for next year. And some things are going to change a little bit as we go through it. And it's also been an opportunity for me to just also... I'm, I actually have a mantra which is moving into 2024, which we'll talk a little bit about later in terms of doing stuff that I really want to do that I have been reticent about doing because how difficult it's going to be. Um, certain episode topics, for example. But anyway, let's get into it. So 2023... Let's have a look at all those videos that came out on the main channel this year. There was a lot of them, in fact. Uh, this is everything that I got published on the main channel this year. Uh, 17 videos, um, if we don't include promotion for the game jam and all this sort of stuff. But it's sort of, it's quite a breadth of content. So in the main AI and game series, we did <clears throat> deep dives into The Last of Us Part 2. Uh, Halo Infinite's multiplayer, Into the Breach, um, the Plague Tale games, and then uh, Marvel Spider-Man. We had Design Dive, only had one episode this year, uh, continuing my exploration of the Resident Evil games, which is probably the end of that sub-series, actually. The next episode of Design Dive is already in the bag, or well on its way, actually. Um, AI 101 only got one episode, which was machine learning for video games. And then we had the release of two new series this year. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what happened with that was so we did Artifacts, which is my generative AI and procedural generation series. And that's had a, you know, a good number of episodes. We had about four episodes this year. Um, starting it off with my... Uh, where is it? There it is, Radical Content Generation on Unexplored 2. And then we got into, um, I did an episode on generative AI and trying to explain what generative AI is. And a big part of that was one, I felt like I really needed to start laying the groundwork for this in a way that was going to be conducive to the audience. But also I knew I was going to be doing the episodes with Convey and InWorld at that point. That episode came out in like May, June time. We were already working on the Convey and InWorld episodes because they were sponsored projects working with those companies. And so I wanted to get in front of those before I just dropped those videos like without any context. So we did that. 
Uh, we also had the episode of Marvel Spider-Man um, looking at procedural generation of Manhattan. And then in the top left corner, you can see the last episode of this year is when I did the Generative AI Explained episode, I gave a sur I opened up a survey for people to fill in and share their thoughts on how they feel Generative AI is going to work in games and asking across the spectrum, what's your, what's your, your feeling on this? And we got over 250 responses. And in this episode, which will come out tomorrow, I summarize the responses. And I also give you um, several key messages and quotes that were lifted from people who submitted. We had people all the way from students to hobbyists, individual developers, university lecturers, uh, indie game developers, AAA game developers. We had a pretty good spectrum of people submit to this. And... I'll share those results with you tomorrow. I'm very excited to do that. Um, we also had the history of AI in games, which hasn't had as much love um, from myself as I wanted. I knew that the, the views on them haven't been great, but that's fine. This was this is a passion project of mine. I really wanted to do it. So we've done two episodes so far. We had the episode on the Mechanical Turk, which came out in earlier this year. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we had the episode on the history of automata theory and how that intersects with when really, when you actually start looking at all the different people that were involved in that body of research in the 40s and 50s, you notice it actually has connections to the Manhattan Project, which is a very weird thing. So yeah, <clears throat> a good breadth of stuff. Um, Aurora, I saw your question. I will come back to it in a little bit when we do a wee bit more Q&A um, later on. Actually, I'm just going to Maybe screen grab that for for later, um, so I don't forget about it. Also, why have I? All oh right, I was like, how have I? Why have I got a ping here? And it isn't. I actually pinged myself by accident on Discord. Okay, <clears throat> where were we? Uh, right. So I wish I had more monitors. I've only got two monitors now, and I really feel like I need a third one. Um. So yeah, let's talk numbers and stuff. Like, how has this actually been this year? Because I've actually released quite a lot of content. It's not the most I've ever released in one year, but how's it doing? So this year, we have... Oh, maybe I should briefly hide myself from you. There we go. So this year, we've had 17 videos come out on the channel. And that has resulted in... This is actually the, the lowest number of views we've had on the channel since... I think 2017. So, <clears throat> channel figures are down to 925,000 views. Uh, we had an increase in subs this year, uh, 27.1 thousand subs. In fact, we broke 200k uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is very, very exciting. I'm very pleased about that. Thank you all once again to everybody who continues to support um, my shenanigans. But as you can see, the numbers are very volatile. So 2018, 2019, 1.2 million, 2.1 million. 2020, I think it's it's key to say 2020 is the outlier because 2020 is the COVID year. So that's the first year everything kicked off with COVID. <clears throat> and of course, the numbers were huge. But also 2020 is an interesting story because 2020 was at a time when I had ran out of... Um, work. I was actually struggling to get work and I went through a phase where I had no real work coming in. I did a little bit of university teaching on the side and then that was all thrown up in there because of COVID and I just sat down and I was like, 
I'm waiting. Actually, I had a whole bunch of contract work I was doing and all those contracts dried up because every company panicked and went, we're reevaluating budgets because the world is on fire last uh, right now. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I went away and made a bunch of videos. And so if you look at a particular period of 2020, you'll see all those videos did gangbuster numbers. Facade. I did my return to Alien Isolation. I did The Last of Us, uh, Command and Conquer, Splinter Cell, City Skylines. All those episodes did really, really well. Mm, excuse me. Yes. <clears throat> all those episodes did really well, and that was because it was in that era. Usually, the way that this works is... The reason I get numbers to really kick up in a given year is I have one episode that is a banger. One episode that just blows up and it does a lot of good business. In 2023, we did not have one. And I think that's actually, that's how I account for that 75,000 view difference compared to 2022. Uh, it's because 2021... <clears throat> trying to think. 2021, the, the big episode was... What was it? Don't know. Twenty, Actually, I think 2022, the big episode was Townscaper. Townscaper was the big one of one of those two years. I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think it was 2022. Um, wonder if I can actually just look this up very quickly in my own YouTube analytics, because I just need to double check when these videos came out. Um, let's see. <clears throat> no, yeah. No, it wasn't. Yeah, 2021 was facade because 2022 was Doom. Yeah, that's right. I did the episode on Doom. Uh, facade is from the spring of 2021, I think. Uh, 2022. Yes, March 2022. That is... Um, no, it was 2022. All right, shit. Okay, so I'm talking out my behind here. 2021 was... Um, Drivatar, Forza's Drivatar. That episode did really well. And so this is kind of what happens is um, if one video does really well, the whole channel does well. Because what happens is a lot of the people who come in and watch those videos when they do really well have never heard of me before. And then they go, what else has he done? And what you tend to see is there's this kind of this chain reaction where one video does really well and then suddenly a bunch of my other videos start doing better. Um, one of the things that's actually quite interesting about my channel compared to, I think, a lot of other content creators is if you look at those numbers, so I just said 925,000, down the bottom here, underneath me, is the top 10 most viewed episodes of 2023. They only account for around 40% of the views that I got this year. Um, so let's just actually quickly hide myself so you can see what my top 10 episodes were this year in terms of views. Number one, Alien Isolation. Number two, Alien Isolation. Uh, between the two of them, they account for about 150,000 views. Those videos continue to do very well. I pretty much earn a free cup of coffee every day off the back of those two videos because people... I would be a much more successful content creator if I just made videos about Alien Isolation. I'm just going to put it out there. Anyway. Then Facade. Facade had a resurgence this year. There was a period, I think, in the spring where that Facade video was just doing crazy numbers every day and it was really exciting to see. Uh, number 72, which was my episode on Into the Breach, which came out this summer, um, that did quite well and I'm, I'm really happy with that because it was such a conceptually simple episode. Um, next up, the 
episode that came out just a month or so ago about procedural generation in the Marvel Spider-Man games. That's done really well. Um, Townscaper, my episode on generative AI for games. The AI 101 on goal-oriented action planning, which also this year broke its 100,000 view count, if I remember right. Let me just check. Yes, it's at 125,000 views now. Uh, The Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man episode, and then also this video on Monte Carlo tree search. So that's actually, oops, that's actually based on my old AI 101 series before I revamped it from years ago. That Monte Carlo tree search video dates back to 2018 and I've just never got rid of it because it seems to do, so AI 101 episodes are interesting. A lot of my YouTube episodes have a big boom in fig and viewing and then they kind of taper off for a bit and then maybe they start having a bit more views at a later time. All my AI 101 videos, the growth is linear, like because they become educational. It's students, like a lot of universities and stuff use my AI 101 videos. So, and people are just going, what's a behavior tree? What's utility AI? Oh, right, there's a video right there that explains it. So those videos get a lot of gradual continued growth. So that Monte Carlo research video has like 112,000 views. And it's a video that isn't very good. It just gets the numbers and it's kind of nuts, but it is what it is. And so, yeah, it's been an interesting year. Um, This doesn't mean that AI and games as a whole has actually done fewer numbers. It's actually been kind of the opposite. Uh, Numbers are very good this year, but in a very weird and very different way. But yeah, the main channel, not as much this year. I'm not too fussed about it and I'm not too worried about it because as I said in January, my goal is to really double down on making content that I'm happy with, making content that I think is good, but also continually trying to find new and interesting topics to explore. Um, Artifacts, I think, has actually been a really good call. Um, Oh, there we go. So Alan in the chat just says, all pretty much all of your AI 101 videos are linked on the VLE, the virtual learning environment for game AI programming at uh, Goldsmiths University, which is where Alan teaches at in London. So first of all, thank you for doing that. and but yeah, it's kind of it's that thing that I know a lot of people use those videos in that context. So that's why those videos get that kind of growth. Whereas um, certain videos you release them, and after that they maybe get like a couple of thousand, a couple of hundred views a year, and then other videos they just continue to prove interesting. Alien, Fear, all the big, the big games, and then interestingly, like some episodes you bring them out and they aren't doing, they don't do that well. <clears throat> Yars West, hello sir, how you doing? Um, a lot of them will just come in and, you know, they'll maybe do modestly well, they won't do that well at all. It's it's a it's a funny business, like Spider-Man. Like, that's a big AAA game. Not a lot of people have watched that video. It's not going to do that well. I'm very proud of that episode, though. Um, and we'll come back to that, because I think there was questions about, like, my favourite video that I made this year and the like. But, yes, enough about the numbers. Let's let's talk about the other thing that happened this year. So the other thing that happened this year was, of course, AI and Games Plus launched. So this is my side channel um, where I just get to do more and more weird stuff that I've just wanted to do. So as I said earlier, I have made more content this year than I've ever made. Um, just the sheer amount of stuff that I've put out on YouTube this year. And so AI and Games Plus was an opportunity to really experiment and do a lot of weird things. As you can see here, we've got the main AI and Games Plus series, which it continues to change. Like I started it out as like extra videos that tie into main episodes. And I realized actually that's not 
really something that I was thinking. Um, that I was kind of like, actually, I don't know if that's what I really want to do. And so you'll notice it kind of became a bit of a, a vlog. So I did my vlog on what's it like to go to GDC? What's it like to go to... Um, all the programming jokes kicking off in the chat now because it's AI and Games Plus, but it's spelt with two pluses because that's a programming joke. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but then I did like the summer school, I did GDC, and then recently I've been doing industry analysis and I'm beginning to lean towards that's what AI and Games Plus becomes is it's more a reactive uh, deconstruction of AI in the games industry and in the news because that is something that I am quite passionate about. I do a lot of information management or trying to channel challenge misinformation at least and so that might be something that uh, it continues to do um smoke and mirrors which is my game review series which i haven't done that many of and i've actually decided i'm going to retire that show because i don't think game reviews are what people are really interested in from hearing from me and i don't i, I kind of enjoy doing them but at the same time i'd much rather just focus on streaming and just stream games to you and chat with you directly while i play games and i feel like that's something that i should just try and be more consistent with um we did actually do a lot of streaming this year courtesy of the player choice series which was something that modeling i sponsored me to do and so we did this whole thing of like getting everyone to vote on their favorite games and then we would live stream them and discuss the merits and then we'd showcase the results and it was like elimination rounds and it was fun. I really, I really enjoyed it. We probably won't continue it in that form because we discovered how just, we just completely missed, we, we over-engineered it to the point that I think it took the fun out of it a little bit. Um, I mean, I had a good time and it was great to see people turning up, but also just numbers attending those streams really dwindled. And I felt, well, maybe it would have been better if we just pick a couple of games more consistently and stream through them, like a kind of game club idea. So literally having chats with, actually I'm meeting my model AI tomorrow, so maybe we talk about it then. Hey, Shrada. Um, but yeah, that was something we also kind of experimented with. And then on top of this, of course, we had the Branching Factor podcasts. Um podcast what 11 episodes in and actually um this will be this recording will actually be the 12th episode because we had trouble scheduling episode 12 for this month so hello podcast people one of the interesting challenges that we had um with this is even though that we actually built it with multiple co-hosts trying to arrange time with the co-hosts has also proven difficult for one reason or another because one of the things we did do was just um everyone's busy so trying to we made it so that not everybody had to be in for every episode so you'll notice that some episodes certain co-hosts like quang or george or what any of them any of the four would come in and then we maybe wouldn't see them again for a while um so on that note actually we haven't seen Anne, and Sullivan's not been on the show now for a few months. Anne actually took ill earlier this year. Thankfully, she's on the mend. Hello, Anne. I hope you're doing great. I need to drop you a message and see how you're getting on. But naturally, of course, she wasn't feeling good, so we pulled out of that. Um, and so you'll notice that in the tail end of the year, actually, more episodes were with myself, George, and Quang, because we had a little bit better availability and we were able to connect with one another a little bit more. Um, on that note, uh, Mike will also be stepping down from being kind of a regular part of the co-hosts because he's just kind of, he's got a lot going on. He's a very busy man over at King's College, but uh, he was, continues to be 
a part of the channel and no doubt we'll get them back on for an episode uh, hopefully in 2024 but we're going to continue on um, in fact we were literally uh, scouting physical locations to actually record Branching Factor on site in London uh, earlier this month and then it just ran away from us trying to get time to then subsequently record an episode so I was like don't worry the, the Wrapped is going to be the Branching Factor episode for this month. So I apologise to all you podcast lovers out there wanting to hear George and Quang and Mike and Anne's voice. You're just stuck with me today. But we're really pleased with that. I've had a good time with this. I think it's worth saying also a big thank you to all our guests that came on this year. Um, we had Christopher and Julian from Model AI. Uh, we had the team from the Bitmap Bureau. Uh, we had the panellists from the AI Summer School that uh, I hosted so that was with Oscar Stahlberg, Dooku Chakmak, Wesley Kerr and Katja Hoffman um, and then actually the most recent episode we did with Matt Gamble from the YouTube channel Game Dev Guide so that was good fun we've enjoyed it we will continue to do that going forward um, so all of this gets shifted onto AI and Games Plus all of it goes there funnily enough recording a monthly podcast is actually quite hard it actually would be easier perhaps if we actually recorded it more frequently and it forced us into our regular cadence i don't know we'll get there i know it's something george and i have talked about a lot because george and i are always very determined to execute projects um often to our own detriment what's up buddy how you doing george right um so all this has been going on the second channel branching factor of course is also on podcast providers the difference in views this year on AI and Games Plus is staggering. So, let's get into that. AI and Games Plus this year... So, AI and Games Plus used to be called Smoke and Mirrors. It was just the YouTube channel for the Smoke and Mirrors videos because they used to be patron um, exclusive videos that would then get released a couple of months later to the public. And then I sort of just took Smoke and Mirrors and rebranded it into AI and Games Plus. And you can see a huge difference in how this has actually worked out because the other thing I've been doing with AI and Games Plus is it's where I publish shorts. I've started getting into a, re uh, a habit recently of making shorts based on my episodes and publishing them both here and on TikTok and I started doing it sporadically throughout 2023 but I started doing it more consistently as of two months ago. Why? I just wanted to see if, we, if TikTok would be an interesting avenue to explore conversion so if you post a bunch of content, these clips, does that then result in people watching the main show? The answer is yes and no, but the numbers are really interesting. So as you can see here, I released 13 videos on Smoke and Mirrors last year. And when it turned into AI and Games Plus, I released 31 videos. So that's all the videos you've just seen, plus 75 shorts. I released roughly four to five shorts a week. And I've been doing this consistently now since October. And we've went from 35,000 views to one and a half million. So AI and Games Plus has had more views this year than the main channel has. Um, now, this is the weird thing, because also the subscribers, it's it's went up from 600 to 4.7 thousand. So AI and Games Plus is still a very small channel. It only has seven and a half thousand subs, but it's had one and a half million views this year. I would argue about point. 1, 1 1.2 million of that is just the shorts. The rest of it is the videos. And that's the crazy part. Um, my my if, if you look at my TikTok, so my TikTok has about 4,000 followers now. I'm sitting on about 90,000 likes. It's had about 1.5 to 2 million views now. So we're seeing 
And interestingly, we're seeing certain penetration in terms of like, I make shorts of episodes that do really well. And coming back to this whole notion of you release an episode and whether or not it really does well, you can have an episode come out and it doesn't do great. And then I do the shorts and the shorts do better than the actual video does. So perhaps probably the best example of this, I'm going to jump back a couple of slides. Uh, down here in the bottom there, Finding Flow, that is the episode on A Plague Tale. That video has done, hang on, I'm going to, I'm going to look it up right now, live count. It's not a lot. Do, 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 do. 12,000 views. That video did not get much love. 12,000 views for the episode on A Plague Tale. The shorts for that episode have about a million views. The TikToks for that episode combined, I've done several shorts. I think this, that video is broken up into about five or six shorts, which are also then published on TikTok. I think if you if you get the count of all the, the views of the TikToks and the shorts, it amounts to something like two and a half million. And that really speaks to the difference in how recommendation algorithms are pushing content, but also even just it, one of the things that's actually quite edifying about it is realizing people are interested in this stuff, even if YouTube won't put it in front of them. And I thought that was really interesting. So yeah, YouTube isn't putting that video in front of them. It's putting the shorts in front of them though. And thankfully AI and Games Plus got monetized in September. So I've made more monetization money from the shorts about A Plague Tale than I have the actual video about A Plague Tale. The shorts don't make that much money, let me just stress. Like actually there's still a lot more money to be made in videos, but even then it's not a huge amount of money. So yeah, there you go. Here's a weird, wonderful reality in that I'm actually booming in shorts at the moment. My average, like a short can do anything from 500 to 1000 views in its first day to like 20,000. And I'm just like, I have no idea. <clears throat> and what I do is I don't even try to do, I'm, I'm very lazy. I actually use an AI tool called Opus Clip where I just upload my video, I get a link to my video and it just cuts it up into nice sliced out clips and I just publish the clips and that's it. But it's it's interesting because it's allowing me to engage with a different audience and I've actually really enjoyed seeing how it blows up on TikTok because it's it's very obvious I'm actually like appealing to an audience who's never heard of me and seeing them in the comments getting excited about stuff. It's like, oh, here's some clip from Alien Isolation from years ago and people are going, oh my God, what? that's really neat. That's kind of cool. So it's been kind of fun to engage with that and we're only seeing a little bit um, we're only seeing a little bit of that actually translating into YouTube views, but it's fine. It's fine. I've I've got over, I used to be very snooty about the idea of whether or not we use, we do, I, I don't, I personally don't enjoy shorts. I don't find them particularly interesting. I don't, like funnily enough, I don't watch YouTube shorts. I don't watch TikTok. I literally log into my TikTok to publish my own content. I follow like three people on TikTok maybe six people on TikTok and half of them are my friends. So it is what it is, but there you go. So yeah, as you can see, the most viewed episodes this year um, that were actual videos that were in the top 50 
So I had to scrape through the top 50 of my YouTube views on AI and Games Plus, and these are the only videos. I only found eight videos in the top 50, which was kind of weird. Um, so there we go. Bright Spark has actually just commented over on Twitch. Um, I struggle to sit down and find time to watch the YouTube vids these days, but I occasionally stumble on your TikToks as I scroll, and I love the short factual clips you release on there. So. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, I realise it's kind of tackling a specific audience or demographic or whatever. Um, uh, LB asks, wondering what the audience on TikTok shorts is, is it game dev students, hobbyists? I find it's a bit of a mishmash, you'll, you'll find people in the comments that clearly have game dev experience, but um, I think it will, it does end up saying, I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird, it's kind of, there's a, you find it's kind of an it's more of a mishmash of hobbyists and actual gamers. I don't find there's many game devs who comment in the TikToks. You tend to find they actually appear, um, like in the uh, in the main videos. And I guess one of the things that does work for AI and games is that most of my episodes are more or less just factual breakdowns, and so you can see that episode be broken up into a bunch of individual clips, and it works. Um, not all the time, because it varies from episode to episode, but it is what it is. So yeah, you can see that the most viewed episodes, there was two of this episodes of Smoke and Mirrors, um, and then I did the, uh, the, actually, the first episode, I think, of Player Choice, and then actually the episodes talking about generative AI being banned on storefronts. Who knows? Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Um... Right, Spark, I realise you just got interrupted there by a commercial, but just to say, again, the whole the, the point was that factual clips actually seem to be working. And it we were I was actually just reading out your comment also to the YouTube audience because this is being simulcasted. So just saying, actually, this seems to be what's working for it is the, because they're broken up short factual clips that actually works out quite well. Um, anyway, right, moving on. So the last thing I always like to talk about as well is the financial economic reality of running this uh, YouTube experiment. So here we go. Here is the actual monetization figures from this year's running of the channel. As you know, AI and Games is uh, supported on Patreon um, you can also subscribe on Twitch if you're watching it there. You can become a YouTube member. Um, we also have a Substack that I launched this year, uh, where you can um, uh, you can subscribe. Like all the written episodes are now on Substack, and also you can support uh, that way. And it's more or less the same kind of basic. Uh, it's the same kind of level of support and rewards that you get if you're on the same tier on Patreon, by and large. So. Patronage has naturally taken a hit this year because 2023 sucks in many respects. We've had a difficult... It's a difficult year economically for so many people. Cost of living crises everywhere, energy bills, inflation. And quite a lot of the time when you have exit interviews on Patreon, they're not quite exit interviews, it's like an exit survey. It's like, why are you cancelling? And when I look through it, a lot of it is just people like, my economic situation ain't great. And I'm like, all right. That's fine. Like, you know, I'm always appreciative of anyone who can support the show. But at the same time, it's also about your own what you can do. 
and what you can what you can support monetarily that's that's that is the most important thing and if you can throw a bit of money my way to help me build this that's great if you can't also fine like there's always ways that you can help support the channel watch the videos suffer the ads share the videos etc etc um so it's i'm always appreciative of any support that anyone can provide um over the years so having a look at it active patronage dropped this year we went from 155 in 2022 to 135 and that worked out to a total patronage of about six and a half thousand pounds which for our american friends that translates to about eight thousand two hundred dollars i just realized i should actually translate it um for our uh, european friends out there that's about seven and a half thousand euros um so and it's also, and then if you look at the YouTube on the monetization, that is combined across both channels. YouTube monetization made about two and a half thousand pounds, which is thirty one hundred dollars and two thousand, roughly about two thousand nine hundred euros off the top of my head. So that gives you an idea of how monetarily beneficial it is to create content, and the answer is not a lot. Um, it's I mean, those numbers are still pretty awesome. Don't get me wrong. I'm looking at that and going, hang on, you make X amount of money from publishing the videos, but also I make that amount of money from people supporting the show. That's amazing. Um, but also, like, I've been very public over the years talking about how um, AI and games as a YouTube experiment is not financially sustainable, and it never has been. It's always been something I do on top of something else which actually makes the money. Um to get, put that in context, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> oh yeah, Alan asked, do you find websites like Social Blade are accurate for your channel? I haven't looked in a while, but I tend to find the answer is no, because it can't anticipate the fact that most of my episodes, like I said earlier, some of my episodes do very well and some of my episodes don't. And so it kind of averages out. It goes, oh, well, you seem to have like, your, it, it kind of figures, it, it bases it, I think, on the mean and not the median of like video views. So according to Social Blade, actually, let's look it up right now. While we're chatting, let's have a look on Social Blade. Um, if you're not familiar, Social Blade is like a analytics thing for YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, etc., to kind of help talk about how to expose statistics on how successful a particular channel is. And then also like projections for how well it could do. Um, so actually, yeah, my projected annual earnings, according to Social Blade, is £228 up to 3.7 thousand. So 2.5k, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, I guess. Um, uh, my video views of, like, my estimated monthly earnings are somewhere between 20 and a £300. That is correct, I guess. Um, let's see. I'm currently, uh, let's see, I am, hmm, I'm kind of looking at this right now. I am currently in the 1,000, I'm roughly in the 1,500th rank of the most successful gaming courses, class, uh, channels. But yeah, this is also the weird thing, so things like Social Blade don't always, like, properly account for it. Um, also, because, yeah, Social Blade thinks I only have 9.5 million views. I don't. I have a closer to 11 now. But anyway, so 
Uh, to put that in context, so six and a half thousand, two and a half thousand, that works out about nine thousand pounds a year. Um, that accounts for about 35% of the income I need to pay my rent and bills for the year. And when you think about how much time I put into my YouTube videos, I put a lot of time and energy into them. That isn't enough to live on. Hence, of course, like I said, like starting this year, I've been working for myself full time. And this is merely the public face of what I do, which is also still monetized and I earn, and I earn an income from it. And of course, the patronage is then used to help influence and re like I reward people who support the show, but also in turn, um, they get to help influence and guide where I'm going and give feedback as well. So big thank you to all my patrons uh, this year, um, who are often quite instrumental and very helpful as we're going through ideation and giving feedback and stuff like that. Um, fortunately, the other side of what I do when I do game development, consultancy, everything else has done quite well this year to the point that that accounts for less than 10% of what AI and games the business has actually earned. So we've had a good year and this is this is really icing uh, on top, top of the cake, really. So yeah, that's that's the reality of it. Um, speaking of, let's talk about some professional highlights of the year. And uh, yeah, um, so I've done a bunch of stuff this year outside of the channel. As I said, I now work for myself full time, so I work from home. I've also had to navigate the realities of doing stuff like moving house in amongst all this other stuff, which has been a little intense, but we might well also continue in production, which has been hard. Um, if you were watching the Branching Factor podcast, you'll have noticed how just one episode it stopped being in one room and it was suddenly in another room. And now it's in this room. And actually, this room has went through three configurations over the year been a bit hectic but anyway so let's talk it through um started the year so of course in march i was over at gdc um this was actually my first year in attendance at gdc i'd never actually been despite the fact that i am uh, on the advisory board for the ai summit and i have been there for a couple of years naturally covid and everything else meant i wasn't going to go but we went out i had a really good time i got to meet a lot of viewers of the channel uh for the first time who had been following along for a very long time and also slightly funny because you meet people who are like hey you made an episode about this game that we made or i made in a previous job years ago and that oh god did you like it and they went oh it was great we loved it I'm like oh thank god thank god thank god oh god um it was funny to still have those interactions today and also just to meet some people who i've met in the comments or in the discord server who were at who were there um, and, uh, and I got to meet them and have a chat with them in real life, which was good. Um, if you want to know more, by all means, go and watch the vlog episode on AI and Games Plus because we even talk about some weird and wonderful stuff that did happen, like um, myself, Matt Gamble and Mark Brown nearly causing a, you know, a fire safety hazard in the middle of the expo floor because the three of us were just having a conversation and we, we had a crowd form around us, mostly because of Mark, to be honest, because, um, you know, Game Maker's Toolkit very popular um is what it is uh let's see what else so spilt milk studios i was working over there um for around eight months nine months originally i was only actually meant to work for the studio for about three to four months i came in as an interim technical director to help them out they had a lot of work going on at the time and uh they were having a change of staff and it meant that there was just a lot of plates spinning there was a lot of um 
you know, balls up in the air. And so they needed someone who could just come in and help kind of read, write the ship. And so I was like, okay, I can come in and do a bit of work for you. I worked there part time. And we did that. And then it wound up I was there longer than planned because we went through, a, there was a lot of stuff happening in a very short period of time. And also I think they were then struggling to find someone to come in as my permanent replacement. I think also I was actually doing an okay job. So Andrew Smith, who runs, who's the company director, wasn't in any hurry to replace me. Um, we ended up working on a bunch of projects there. Um, I felt really gutted for the team because we actually did a bunch of work. Um, we, had, we had a number of juniors at the studio and one of the things we worked on was games for Krata. Krata was a sort of Fortnite-esque platform that was owned by Meta and it was shut down in March. And we were actually doing a lot of work for hire for the studio that managed Krata to create games evocative of the potential of Krata. And so basically we were making games on their platform for people to play. And it was a work for hire gig, um, which was quite lucrative for the studio. And it was a great opportunity for the, the juniors because it meant they got to work on games that we were we only put in production for like four months. It was like really small, simple games that we would polish up, add a bit of longevity to them and then release them. And ended up, we released our final game, uh, Super Adventure Team 64, two weeks before I think Krata actually shut down. So you can't even play the games anymore, uh, which is a shame. They couldn't, the platform was built in such a way you couldn't really export it to another um, game engine. Um, CSS and Lua for all you programmers out there and it was an engineering layer built on top of Unreal I'll let you unpack that by yourself <clears throat> so we worked really hard on that and it was a shame in the meantime I actually worked on something else uh, because my job was I sort of oversaw all the different we had at one point like four different games that we were working on at different size and shape and scale and so one of the projects i did work on as you can see on screen right there is called trash goblin so this is a puzzle game that is also an a shop sim that takes place in a fantasy world and uh, the game is currently on kickstarter uh, so you can go and check that out in fact i will publish that uh, i'll actually get the link uh now while i can um yeah, LP's just caught up on the CSS and Lua. He's like, okay, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so here's the link. Um, I'll publish it. Where's the thing? Where's the chat? I can publish it. So go by all means, go and have a look at that. If you're interested, go and check it out. Um, I'll also publish it in Twitch. Um, yeah, so what happened was I actually came back from GDC and we went to the London finance market and we pitched Trash Goblin to about, in the room, over the period of two days, I think we pub we pitched it to about 25 different uh, publishers. I think in total, um, not doing in-person um, pitching, I think it was pitched ultimately to about 70 publishers in the, in the period. Um, we actually, if, in fact, if you want to know the full story, go and check out Spilt Milk Studios um, socials because they've been posting a lot and telling the story about this recently, how we actually had um, uh, worked on, we actually had a publishing deal more or less and then it fell through for reasons which are I am not in any position to really discuss, but uh, it fell through and so subsequently 
the game is they're now going for crowdfunding to at least get a version 1.0 out on Steam uh, sometime in 2024. Uh, what did I work on in Trash Goblin? I sort of oversaw the original prototype being built so it was actually inspired by a student project that we'd worked on we then actually hired some of the students full time to come in and work on it i helped establish the engineering pipeline kind of oversaw production of the original prototype that we then put out into we actually had a and um, when we pitched it we pitched it on a steam deck um which full credit to simon roth um, who did most of the engineering work to get it running really smoothly on, on the Steam Deck. I was responsible because I was in a tech lead position. I'd spent more time doing continuous integration pipeline management. Probably the most code that I actually have written in the Trash Goblin code base is their automated build system and how it builds. the. We actually have the whole system built up so that when we push changes in plastic, we actually then build it automatically on Team City. Um, and most of the code that I've actually written that's in the Trash Goblin code base is managing that so that it can handle different build configs and all this other stuff. So funnily enough, I think that's actually the most code I've got written on that project, but I was very much instrumental in overseeing its production from the very beginning. Um, but full, um, shout, you know, full credit to the whole team over there who were doing amazing work. Um, and yeah, I think they're about halfway through funding the Kickstarter. I think the Kickstarter finishes up at the end of the at the start of next month. We might do, get to do a stream on Trash Goblin if I have time. But yeah, go and check it out if you're interested in nonograms and kind of fantasy um, shopping sims. So yeah, that was my time at Spilt Milk this year. And then I wrap that up in. August because I had other projects on the horizon um, <clears throat> so the Pragmatic Engineer I went back and did some more work with uh, Gergi Oros over there which uh, if you're not familiar the Pragmatic Engineer is like the number one technical newsletter on Substack and I've done a bunch of work with him that was really good fun I uh, had a good time with that I was at Develop again this summer I didn't do any talks or anything I actually went down purely for business meetings and for socials and I'm quite happy to say that a bunch of meetings that I had there have then led to work that I'm going to be doing in 2024. In fact, a bunch of people that I met when I was down there, I'm literally starting work with their studio probably in January. Can't talk about it just yet, but hopefully we'll, have, we'll be able to talk about it probably this time next year, I imagine. <clears throat> Uh, down the bottom, I'll be continuing my work with Model AI. Um, Model AI, of course, have sponsored uh, the Branching Factor podcast. They've sponsored um, the Player Choice series. I helped do a bit of work for them in places as well. And uh, we continue to have a good working relationship. And uh, they're they're continuing. To, their, their product is actually now available in the asset stores for people to use. And they've also got larger scale commercial stuff as well that they're developing as well. And so good on them. In the bottom left corner, that is me at the AI and Games Summer School, uh, which we also did a vlog about on AI and Games Plus, but that was in Cambridge in the, here in the UK. Um, I was invited to turn up just for giggles because I know the organisers really well. So um, Yergo Shanakakis and Julian Tegelius are the two like leads of the AI Summer School. And um, we go back, I go back with them almost 20 years. And so they were like, yo, we're having this summer school and it's actually not far from where you live. Would you mind coming along? I was like, sure. Oh, would you mind hosting a panel while you're there? And I'm like, okay. So 
you can actually see there in the bottom left corner, that's me hosting a panel on the future of AI for game development um, with from left to right in that image. It's Katja Hoffman, who is the head of AI uh, game AI research um, at Microsoft Research in Cambridge. Uh, she's been involved in a number of projects over the years, most notably a lot of Microsoft's research in building AI that can play Minecraft. Um, second in from the left is Dugu Chakmak. She is the uh, R&D director at Creative Assembly um, and is previously an AI programmer on Total War. She's also one of the um, AI Summit advisory board members and a good friend of mine. Um, and so that made it, uh, it's worth saying that actually most of the people on that panel are people I knew already, so that, that worked out quite well. Um, third along, that's um, Oscar Stolberg, who you might remember is who I interviewed for the episode on Townscaper. And funnily enough, when we met, he didn't recognise me until I said, hey, like I interviewed you about um, for a video about Townscaper a couple of years ago. And he's like, oh yeah, like, because we'd never met. <clears throat> Last one along at the right end, at the far end on the right, that's Wesley Kerr. He is the R&D director um, at Riot Games uh, out in Los Angeles. And we met at GDC and we are subsequently still in touch about possibly doing something together down the line. And so they were fantastic. Thank you so much to all of them. In the bottom right, funnily enough, that's actually nicely timed. I've done a bit more press. I've been doing a lot more. I do a lot of press outside of the UK, funnily enough. I get invited to comment on more gaming magazines and news sites in like Germany and like the Czech Republic than I do in the UK. But actually I ended up, I was invited to comment on a few things over here in the UK for the BBC this year. And in fact, that cut that article, um, I was interviewed about it while I was at the summer school, which was hilarious. Um, and uh, if I remember right, that was because it was George, actually, somebody reached out and they were like, oh, we're really looking for someone to be able to give a comment on the state of generative AI for video games. And uh, Stephen Powell, who was at the BBC, was sort of like, do you know anybody? And they reached out to George Osborne from the Branching Factor podcast and said, do you know anybody? And he's like, let me introduce you to Tommy. And then we had a really good conversation. Um, sadly, what I actually said in that interview is but a snippet of the actual news article we actually had about a 45 minute conversation and i think the best bits that i actually said weren't put in the article but i don't know the bbc have said they might come knocking on my door again and so that's fine whatever <clears throat> it's nice to be invited um and then on the left hand side that was why i left spilt milk so one of the things i've been wanting to get into is teaching again in some capacity and I know some of you have been asking for a long time, where is the online course? When are you going to do that sort of thing? But the other thing that actually came up was, would I be interested in doing professional training? And so that is doing educational material workshops and stuff like that for game developers and professional engineers. And so, yeah, sure. I actually had <clears throat> a company, um, Gamasty, which are based out in France, reached out to me and said, we've had a lot of requests for a machine learning for game developers masterclass. Could you teach it? And the answer was, sure. And then I panicked because I'd never... Funnily enough, I didn't actually have a lot of the material I needed to teach it. I know this stuff, but I'd never taught it at that level before. And so I spent most of September prepping the material and then I toured around France for like a week. Uh, and that photo there is from my last session uh, which was based out in Lyon 
and uh, they were a wonderful bunch actually it was that was a weird one because so we we ran that master class in a hotel that is a converted monastery the most bizarre venue I've I've gave talks in some bizarre places and that takes the cake I did an eight hour machine learning for video games masterclass in a converted monastery absolutely stunning building lovely hotel room and then the city itself is great shout out to all the folk out there in Lyon who attended <clears throat> it was such a bizarre thing but I had a really good time it went really well and um, I'm actually in talks with a number of uh, game studios who saw that I was doing the masterclass and said well we can't really justify sending half the team to France to attend the masterclass how about you come to our studio and deliver it so um, I'm literally in the midst of finalizing uh, a bunch of new masterclasses to be taught in 2024 and uh, yeah even actually we might be doing them at some universities as well uh, so yeah that's an interesting project um, but yeah I've had some I'm getting an interesting range because I've had uh, game AI developers saying, can we have a masterclass on game AI? And then I had technical artists saying, can we have a masterclass on machine learning for technical art? So it means I'm going to be spending a lot of time preparing material because I don't have all this lying around ready to go. But it also furthers my ambitions of getting back into teaching on my own terms. Also pays better than being a university lecturer, let's put it that way. Anyway. And that's only the stuff I can talk about. There's been a bunch of other things that I'm just not in a position to be able to share publicly. I've got NDAs on this, that, and the next thing. Um, I've consulted probably on half a dozen games, often doing very small consultancies, and there's one or two that were a little bit longer. Hopefully, we can talk a little bit more about those down the line if those games actually make it out. Game development is in a weird spot this year. <clears throat> As you'll have noticed in the headlines, it's, it's a weird space uh, in terms of financing for projects, in terms of getting games out the door, in terms of even once the game is kind of ready, does the studio even want to release it at this time or the publisher want to release it at this time? It's a very, it's a very difficult time at the moment. I think the industry is actually very healthy, but the business of it, not so much. Anyhow, right. So that's the end of that bit. Woohoo! What we're going to do is next up, before we get into knee deep into the Q&A part, we're going to do da, 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 the games of the year. So this was something I wanted to do this year. Um, I was originally going to do it as a separate video, but the general point is, what are my games of the year? Because I've been playing a lot of games in amongst all this. And of course, I play a lot of games for video purposes. I also play a lot of games for my own purposes. And I thought, let's just share what are the games that I really, really like this year. Um, and also then find out how wrong I am from the viewing audience. So critically, these are the games that I have played, not the games that actually came out. In fact, most of my top 10 is not games that actually came out in 2023, but I did actually play quite a few games that came out this year, which was really exciting. So let's have a quick look. <clears throat> Here's a, a, a small caveat. Here's all the games that aren't in the mix just yet. These are games that are on my to playlist. 
that I have not played yet because I keep getting people asking me, Tommy, what do you think of Baldur's Gate 3? Like, I haven't touched it because I don't have time right now to play Baldur's Gate 3. Um, these are actually all games um, on screen that I am really looking forward to playing and several of them are installed on my Xbox or my PC and I just haven't played it on my PlayStation. So just to quickly list them off for those of you who are listening rather than viewing, so that's Baldur's Gate 3, Alan Wake 2, Starfield, Marvel Spider-Man 2, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, Jusson, uh, Pikmin 4, Cocoon, Final Fantasy 16, and Thirsty Suitors. I'm very much looking forward to playing a lot of these, actually. Um, I'm I'm so happy because I've seen a lot of games press have been awarding Alan Wake 2 Game of the Year. Um, I'm very excited for this. That's actually the game I'm probably most excited to play next to Thirsty Suitors, probably in that list, is Alan Wake 2, because I really enjoyed the original Alan Wake, and I always thought the set that if they did another one, they had real potential to go place. I, I know the first one wasn't perfect, but it's interesting how that series, you look at Alan Wake 2 and then, or you look at Alan Wake and then you look at Control and you see that Remedy have been working on the same idea for a very long time of setting these, these telling these stories, establishing tone, mixing it with gameplay. And Control was the game where it all comes together in a really satisfying way. Because I, I think I did a video review about this on AI and Games Plus that like control is a game that is better than this is more than the sum of its parts. Its individual bits are generally interesting, but it comes together in such a satisfying way. And so, yeah, all these games are on my to playlist. Funnily enough, um, I bought Marvel Spider-Man 2 for my brother. And then while I was making the videos on Spider-Man, he was finishing Spider-Man 2 and giving me a hard time because I hadn't um I hadn't played it yet. <clears throat> um But yeah, control is uh oh yeah, LB, control is fantastic. Um really enjoyed it. Also, for Alan Wake fans, if you play the DLC, there is a chapter at the end which is an overt tie-in to the narrative of Alan Wake. And so as an Alan Wake fan, I really, really loved that. And it's kind of interesting to see how they are blending those narratives together and how it's actually, there's like a remedy multiverse thing going on, which is kind of fun. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to playing all of these. Hopefully we'll be able to talk about some of these next year. Uh, a few honorary mentions of games that um, could have been on the list and are not. Um, first of all, Resident Evil 4 Remake. I played through that and finished it. Um, a few months ago, I need to go back and play the new DLC for it. I enjoyed it a lot. I also found it interestingly quite frustrating. Um, it was a game that I actually thought the control of it wasn't as fluid as I felt it could be at times. I found the last third was kind of lacking. Um, the final boss was rubbish. I generally just didn't. I actually found the last hour of the game to be a real drag and didn't really enjoy that. Um, but I really liked how they, they played with expectations and then attempted to subvert them quite a lot that they tried to find ways to introduce things that if you've played the original, you know what that is. And then they mess with it a little bit. Like the clock tower in the village, for example, is a really good example of that. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. I found it sagged towards the end, but generally, yeah, overall. Um, Street Fighter 6. Street Fighter 6 is a significant improvement over Street Fighter 5. Street Fighter 5, I thought, was a crushing disappointment. 
Um, Six is does such a good job of building a social hub for people to play fighting games online, which is not something I'm generally interested in. But uh, also, I think the story mode is really fun um, and silly that you can create your own character and then wander around Metro City and just beat people up. Uh, I lost a lot of time to just beating up random people in the street. I just thought it was incredibly satisfying, but also the core mechanics of it, the um, Swift system and what have you, is really well put together. And I feel that they went back towards Street Fighter 4 in terms of building a layered, complex, but nonetheless still quite simple uh, combat system, which I really liked. Picross <clears throat> S8. Right, so... Because we were working on Trash Goblin, we actually got homework at the studio to go and play nonogram-based games, or Picross-style games, um, to find out, you know, to learn more about the genre. And I discovered I actually really like Picross games. And so I've put about 20-odd hours into Picross SA. I was literally finishing a puzzle before I came up here. It's became my, I need to calm down for 20 minutes before I, like, you know, at the end of a day or over a lunch break, I'll, I'll just pull it out and quick, quickly play a puzzle or two. It's Picross, but it's good and I'm really enjoying it. Um, Vampire Survivors is a game that I am struggling to decide whether or not I really like. Uh, it is the perfect airplane video game. It is the perfect game to get on a flight, start it up, and usually you can get through an entire session or maybe two sessions in the, the duration of the flight. Because I do a lot of flying from England to Scotland or England into Central Europe, which the flight time is only maybe 60 to 90 minutes. I can get a couple of runs of Vampire Survivors in. And so, yeah, like, I found it interesting that the more you begin to explore that game, it becomes increasingly more tactical, um, despite its simplicity. And it actually reminds me of what the things that I really like about games like um, the Mosu, uh, like Hyrule Warriors, games or things like Earth Defense Force, uh, th there's actually a lot of tactical complexity in its relative simplicity, and that's why I really like it. Um, Prey, that came up, of course, because we did the Player Choice series, and, I've, and the more I've got into it, the more I'm beginning to realize how rich and interesting it is. I'm still a long way away from finishing it, so it's an honorary mention at this point. It might come back in 2024 because I'm still playing it. <clears throat> Mario Kart 8 Deluxe because we continue to have our lunchtime Mario Kart group uh, shout out to everybody over in the Discord server who I continue to meet up with on a regular basis to play Mario Kart and uh, I interestingly I have played that game for 40 odd hours this year and I have not played it on my own I've played it ex I've, those 40 odd hours are just from playing it with my friends on a regular basis so that was bizarre but I really enjoyed it <clears throat> Uh, two last ones to mention, Hi-Fi Rush by Tango Gameworks is such a refreshing change of pace from them, despite the f like, I actually need to go back and play through and finish um, Evil Within, which is a game I really want to try, but Hi-Fi Rush, I quite enjoyed it. I don't think it, the, the, the core concept, I think, doesn't really hold up for the duration of its playthrough, because it's basically rhythm, it's, it's a hack and slash game, but it's also a rhythm game. And on one hand, it was quite satisfying. On the other hand, I found it got a little stale towards the end. I'm still playing through that a little bit, but nonetheless, still, I love the aesthetic. I love the attitude that it has. Um, and it just felt like a really nice bit of fresh air. And also, like, 
and earlier in the year when it just dropped on Game Pass out of nowhere, it was just a great game to just jump into and go, wow, this is really satisfying and is a really good um, ambassador for what Game Pass can do of bringing out these games that don't have to be huge, big budget AAAs, although this is, you know, got a handsome budget behind it, but it's more of a double A game and then it's just dropped out for you to try. And I really had a good time with it. <clears throat> uh, the last one on this list is Armored Core 6 Fires of Rubicon. Um, which some of you watched me stream. I have only got to play it once or twice since that stream, but I have I realize I love this game and I need to give it the time and attention it needs. So I'm going to go back and restart it at some point once I've cleared a lot of my active playlist. Um, some of the games that are here and then some of the games in my games of the year and then also episodes of AI and games are currently taking up a lot of my playtime right now. So, but yeah, honorary mentions, all great games around here. <clears throat> So, my games of the year, they're not really in numerical order, but I did kind of break them into lower category and upper category. So, uh, let's have a look. First up, here is the first set of my games of the year for 2023, of which one of them came out in 2023. Uh, on the next slide, three games came out in 2023. Um... So first of all, Marvel's Midnight Suns. Actually, let's just list them through for those of you who are listening in audio. So it's my my first five of my top ten of the year is Marvel Midnight Suns, Venba, uh, Resident Evil Village, Dead by Daylight, and A Plague Tale Innocence. So yeah, first of all, Marvel's Midnight Suns by Firaxis, uh, mostly famous for the XCOM series. Midnight Suns is a very weird game that I somehow spent 85 hours playing. And I don't think I realised how much I was enjoying it until I was about 30 hours in. And I realised, oh my god, I'm having such a good time with this. But it's a very difficult sell. Because you think Firaxis, you think tactical tile-based combat. You think this strategy game that the XCOM series is. Midnight Suns is not that. It is a tactical card game. But it is also a relationship simulator. It is Slay the Spire meets XCOM meets um, Fire Emblem Three Houses. That is the closest I can come to explaining what Midnight Suns is. So the core concept is that you are fighting back against uh, demonic hordes brought out by this villain Lilith, who's a comic book character, and you are then led by this character called Hunter, who is created purely as a fiction for the game. Um, and then you lead a team of Marvel superheroes out into combat every time. You can only take up to three of them. But each then the three of them has decks of cards which allow them to execute specific attacks. And those attacks can be comboed, they can be multiplied, they can redeem cards and get cards back if they achieve a certain attack and it goes well. They can use environmental objects to cause additional damage. So there's a lot of tactical complexity there. But the it really then comes down to how you build a deck for each character and then which characters can play well with each other so that you can maximise damage and also create interesting in, um, ways for them to play off against each other. And so you can end up with a character like Captain Marvel, for example, who's a tank. Uh, they can come in, do a lot of damage, go binary. They get a huge amount of... They 
aggro but also they have a huge amount of block and then you can use other characters like blade to do a huge amount of bleed damage and then have another character like morbius who sucks up all the blood and actually then does even more damage to everybody who's now bleeding so you find all these interesting ways to merge these characters together but the team synergy increases the more that the characters get on with each other because the whole idea is that, hey, they don't really know who each other is and there's beef between them and everything else because the Midnight Suns is one set of characters that starts out in the game. It's um, the Robbie Ray's Ghost Rider, it's Blade, um, Nico Morinu, formerly of the Runaways, and Magic, uh, Ileana Rasputin, who's one of the X-Men. And they're like these magic-based and like occult-based characters who then have to like share a house with the Avengers and X and Wolverine and Spider-Man as they're trying to fight back against this like evil um, demonic force. And so the game actually is broken up into two things. You have your day thing where you go in and do training, you do research, all the base management stuff you would do in XCOM, but there's also relationship management. You maybe go in training sessions with certain characters or go for a powwow with them. It's like, ah, let's go have a powwow with Captain America and talk about Meh. Um, you can give them gifts. You can have a cup of tea with them and like, oh, do you want to have a date night where we hang out and play a video game or watch a movie or something? It's stupid. Um, it's total fan service, but it's really fun. And you get into this really interesting, satisfying loop of you get up, you do the busy work, you do the relationship management, and then you go and do a mission. And then you come back, you have a social thing in the evening or a date night, and then you go to bed and then you do the whole thing again. And so the game is actually monitored, modelled on days. And I think my actual final playthrough, I must have played through it for, I, I, I don't know how many days of playtime I actually had um, in game days, just because I would spend a lot of time investing in getting like my relationships with certain characters up, because then you can unlock special missions, which gives you new abilities and new outfits and blah, 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 blah. Surprisingly very satisfying, but I also appreciate it's kind of like video game Marmite. It's one of those games you'll either pick it up and really get into it, or you'll pick it up and you will really bounce off it. Um, definitely worth checking out in the Steam Winter Sale. Like, if it's 10, 20 euros or something, stick it on a Steam Deck and give it a shot. And I think you might be surprised by how much you really like it. Um, okay, so next up... Uh, let's jump to Resident Evil Village. So Resident Evil Village, I feel, is the first of that series or this new era of like first person um, Resident Evil horror games that actually gets it right. Uh, for all of its um, merits, you know, Resident Evil Biohazard, Resident Evil 7, um, got a lot of uh, acclaim um, for the horror focus that it had, being trapped in this Louisiana swamplands um, with the Baker family. I don't think... I feel Resident Evil 7 runs out of steam very quickly. After about three or four hours, you've kind of seen the whole game and I don't think it really goes anywhere. Um, Village, I thought, was interesting because it felt like a greatest hits of Resident Evil. Um, it takes... A, there's a number of different... Uh, moods, tones, styles of gameplay that it brings together. And I really found that quite satisfying. Because um, Village is really broken up into multiple chunks. And there's the overtly horror bit. There's the Resident Evil 7-esque bit. 
There's the Resident Evil 4-esque bit. Um, there's the bit of, oh, you know how every Resident Evil game you're overpowered and you're fighting lots of enemies? We have that bit in it. And I feel it does this really interesting thing of sort of being almost like a, a greatest hits record of Resident Evil's gameplay approaches. But it brings them together in a really satisfying way. And yeah, I found Resident Evil Village to be incredibly satisfying. Um, and I really enjoyed my whole time through it, even all the way up to the end where I thought, oh, it's probably going to lose its steam a little bit. Um, and then also it, it goes places story-wise, and I'm like, what is going on? And then you eventually realise how it does tie into the original Resident Evil mythos as well, which is quite fun. Um, Capcom have figured this out, and I felt that Seven made a lot of compromises to make a game out of that horror conceit, whereas Village feels of far more like they are going back to embracing what made Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 4 really pop so well. But it's this tonal shift that it does, which is so weird, but also quite fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, and But I think it was rightfully called out when it launched in 2022 that... Uh, you know, they made a big, you know, there was a lot of noise made about Lady Demetresque. She's only in it for the first couple of hours because there's all the children of Miranda that you meet and they're all quite different and they they all lead to different gameplay approaches afterwards. I don't know. I had a really good time with it. Well worth checking out. Um, okay. So we have Venba. Let's talk about Venba by uh, Visai Studios. Uh, an indie game that is probably my favourite two hours of gaming I've had this year. Uh, Venba is a cooking game, but it's also a story game. In fact, keep an eye out for uh, the video game's industry memo on Substack. I was invited to write about my game of the year, and they were like, oh, oh, have you, you know, they already had a bunch of people talking about all these other big AAA games, and I said, right, well, I want to talk about why Venba is probably one of the best gaming experiences you're going to have this year. Um... So if you've not played it, the story focuses on <clears throat> Venba, who is the mother in, in the image there. And essentially it's her journey with her husband and her son, uh, Kevin, as they move from South India to uh, Canada, as they go out there to look for better employ employment prospects looking for a better life and it is actually a cooking game that is about trying to retain a connection to your cultural heritage at a time when you are so far removed from it and the game takes place in two epochs there is the first epoch which is of the mother trying to it's a puzzle game because you're having to like make these recipes and cook food from a, a cookbook that's been damaged in transit things have been smudged and everything else and also critically it's written in tamil which is uh if you're not familiar it's a language that is used in kind of southern asia um particularly you know people in south india people in the likes of um sri lanka will write and speak tamil you don't read tamil so how can you read the book but also it's been damaged, so you can't. So she's kind of translating it as she's thinking it through. And one of the things that's also really interesting about it is you're trying to use cooking ingredients and cooking utensils that are not of a traditional like Western kitchen. 
you know, you really enjoy like dosa or a biryani from uh, your local restaurant. Do you know how to make one of those? I really love a good biryani. I wouldn't know how to make a biryani if it was put in front of me. Um, and so it becomes this really interesting puzzle of trying to learn how to actually make a, a traditional Asian dish. And also you're reconnecting this character's... Um, their, you're, you're closing that gap for them as they feel that they're increasingly distant from their own culture, their own culture, their own family um, as well, because Vemba's recipe book was written for her by her mother. And then the game goes through critical, like certain key story moments. And then later on, it's actually then becomes the son's book as he then tries to learn how to write, read, recreate these dishes. But his mum wrote them in Tamil and the kid, given that he grew up in Canada, kind of rebelled against a lot of his cultural heritage because he was kind of ostracized by it. And then subsequently, you're having to do new puzzles and dealing with new problems because the kid can't read his own mother's writing. And it's a very poignant, um, very powerful story, I thought. And it's a very short game. You can beat all of them by about two hours. And you can speedrun it in about, in about 75, 80 minutes. It's not a long game. But it's it tugs on the heartstrings. I thought it was really well put together. And it's just, it's the type of story, it's the type of thing that I want to see more of in my games. I wanted to see, it's like, oh, wow, it's a story about a South Asian couple. Awesome. Like, to me, I think that's really interesting because you're looking at new perspectives or, well, it's not necessarily a new perspective for me. I have a lot of friends who are South Asian. So a lot of what I was seeing in it was something that I connected to and understood to a certain extent because I've had those people in my life for a long time. But it was great to see their lives being represented in a video game on my Xbox, you know? I thought that was amazing. And so I want to see more games like that. And I hope that that game continues to get the success that I think it deserves. Like I said, probably the most um, emotionally resonant two hours I spent on a lazy Sunday in front of my Xbox this year. If you haven't played it, I think it might still be on Game Pass. Go check it out. Absolutely wonderful game. Um, next up, uh, A Plague Tale Innocence. Uh, Let's see. Oh, Alan asks, have you played Unpacking? I did play Unpacking. I think it does. I think Venba does a similar thing to what Unpacking does, but it's far more overt in how it expresses certain core themes and what have you um, than, uh, than Unpacking is. That said, I did also enjoy Unpacking quite a bit, although I found some of the latter missions, I'm just like, oh God. Apparently, I have a disagreement on where certain things should live in the house versus the developers but that's a conversation for another time um yeah so actually plague tale innocence uh by asobo studios that was a game that of course was an episode on ai and games it's now had youtube shorts that have done immensely well um that was a game that i'd heard at the time was really good um and i I'm really glad that we actually made an episode about it. In fact, the episode came about because somebody at one point said to me, have you ever thought about finding out how the rats work in A Plague Tale? And I was like, no, because I'd never played it. And I went away and did the research and then I started playing the game. And I just really enjoyed that it was a period piece. It is a game that is laced in horror and violence, but it is also a game that is fundamentally not about those things. Um, it's a game about survival and... Uh, fraternity and um, about camaraderie 
but it's also a game in which a lot of your even your gameplay is fundamentally not violence based it's actually you're often playing defensively um you're finding ways to solve puzzles uh that could potentially lead to your you, you dying that said it does get increasingly more violent towards the end um it gets horrifically violent uh, actually in the last hour or two but it fundamentally never really strays too far away from the core theme of the relationship between Amicia and Hugo. And I really, I, I also just enjoyed the maturity of it. It's just, it's really well written. And yes, the kid annoys you quite a bit throughout, but also it's kind of understandable. And their relationship evolves and changes throughout, throughout that time. Um, yeah. Great game, really enjoyed it. I'm in the middle of playing the sequel right now. There's some f you saw it in this in the video, but I never actually got around to finishing a Plague Tale um, Requiem, the second one. Uh, that also goes very weird and interesting places as well. But I just like that it's it's a different approach to doing third person action adventure games. Um, uh, Gaming with LA says, can confirm Vemba is on Game Pass and downloading now. Thanks for the recommendation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, last one on this screen is, of course, Dead by Daylight by Behaviour Interactive. Um, those of you who've been following me on Twitch for the last couple of weeks or even just know me a little bit more in person will know that uh, Dead by Daylight is my online game. I play more of... Since 2020, I have been playing that game on and off for a very long time. And it continues to be one of my favourite... It is my default, I want to play an online game experience. Um, more so than a lot of online shooters that are available, like, although I do think Halo Infinite continues to be fun, and I've been playing Call of Duty with my friends, because I have a bunch of friends who, they play Call of Duty, so you play Call of Duty with them. But Dead by Daylight continues to be a game that I really, really enjoy. Uh, I, I'm fundamentally caught up in its cat and mouse structure. The fact that it is a game in which I actually like to play as the mice. I like to play in as a survivor and try and... It's a guessing game because every match you're trying to figure out what are the perks and abilities of your teammates, what are the perks and abilities of the killer, where... And also that every map is procedurally generated. And so you're constantly trying to deal with all these, these elements of randomness to then still survive and actually complete the tasks necessary in order to get out and, and win the game. And so there's something about that that I think is really compelling. Um, also, I think they've had a really good year this year with a lot of the spons the additional characters that they've added in. Um, this year we had the Singularity, which was the first sci-fi killer, which also had a really interesting um, power. The Skull Merchant, who wasn't as well received, but then we had the Xenomorph, they had the Alien chapter, they actually put alien into dead by daylight which is really fun and actually i really enjoy playing as the alien when i play as a killer and most recently they finished it with chucky um is the last killer they've added this year they also added um nicholas cage as a playable survivor which was hilarious actually game breaking nicholas cage broke the meta of the game for about a month it was really really funny um, it's also had its fair share of problems, I think, as with any game of this nature that continues to prove popular and is continuing to grow. And I think this is something they're going to have to continue to fight with. The game apparently has broke 60 million lifetime players this year, which is an amazing achievement. Um, 
and I imagine they're going to continue to deal with this problem as it goes forward. Um, I, according to my Xbox Wrapped, I am in the top 5% of Xbox players of Dead by Daylight, which is a little concerning. That's That's bad, right? Anyway, let's talk about the other slide, the last set of games, and then we'll get into whatever additional Q&A or whatever else we might want to do tonight. My games of the year, page two. So just to quickly list them, for those of you who are audio listeners, uh, the Dead Space remake by EA Motive, uh, Yakuza 0, Bloodborne by From Software, um, Super Mario Bros. Wonder, and Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom by good old Nintendo. So where do I start? Dead Space Remake. Because interestingly, in the remake of Resident Evil 4 made it into my honourable mentions, but Dead Space made it into my top 10. What gives? Dead Space Remake, I felt, was just this really well-executed um, attempt at reconciling a franchise with a modern approach to game development and design. Um, Dead Space Remake plays like you remember Dead Space. But Dead Space doesn't play like that at all. Go back and play the original Dead Space. It doesn't look as good as it does now. It's a little clunky in parts. There are weird concessions of design. And I feel like what Motive did was they went away and looked at it and said, right, how can we bring that back and make it more interesting for a 2023 audience? And so it has a lot of what the environment art and overall environment design is really well constructed. The sound design in it is fantastic. Um, it has more of a fleshed out narrative. They made the concession to actually make Isaac Clarke a voiced character. There's more of the lore of Dead Space is actually laced into it. So actually it rewards people who've played the original and are replaying and are playing the remake because it fills in gaps of the story or plot holes that existed in the original or, you know, just inconsistencies you weren't so sure about. But it adds a lot of backtracking. There's additional side quests that make you explore the, the environment more and find more uh, uh, resource materials. It encourages replayability and going back and doing a New Games Plus. Um... I just found it much more uh, compelling and satisfying experience than I did the Resident Evil 4 remake, which I think for a lot of people looking at a lot of Game of the Year lists, I am not. I am on the opposite end of that. I think a lot of people felt that Dead Space Remake was good, but Resident Evil 4 remake was great. I kind of fell into the latter category. Also, the one th actually coming to what I said earlier about the Resident Evil 4 remake, I found the last boss battle in the Dead Space remake less annoying. I hated the original boss battle at the end of the original Dead Space. I don't think it's anywhere near as bad. I found the last hour of Dead Space originally to be really frustrating, and I feel that they smoothed some of the, the rough edges on that. Conversely, I don't think Resident Evil 4 did that very well. I actually thought the last boss in Resident Evil 4 was super annoying. But overall, I was really taken by it. Um, it's currently like £5 or something like that on the Xbox sale and I think they also they've recently had it on sale on Steam because it's going to be on Game Pass soon if or EA Play so if you really want to play it maybe wait a month and then just get a month of EA Play and check it out but I was pleasantly surprised by it um, I just thought it comes together really really well and 
I was surprised when I started putting together this list that Dead Space was in this was in this list and I thought, no, you know what? I'm really looking forward to going and playing that remake again. And I think I'll probably start a playthrough in the next couple of weeks and do another, I think it'll probably New Game Plus Plus at this point. But yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, let's see. Bloodborne. Okay, so Bloodborne, I'm only about 30 hours into it. Um, good Lord. And also... I, to I, I hinted at the start of this year that there will be the long-awaited continuation of my, like, design dive episodes looking at Soulsborne games. And so we're going to do an episode on Bloodborne, and I already have the hook of that episode in mind and I started writing it. Bloodborne does some very interesting things in how it encourages exploration of the environment, encourages exploration of items and weapons and loadouts and strategies it uh, also has this interesting underlying narrative to it which i think is so rich in a way that dark souls isn't and it's 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 a change of tack in so many regards like it is it is dark souls but or Dark Souls and in every facet of its design. And I think for as someone like me who's played a lot of Dark Souls 1 and 2, and that's how far ahead I am, I have only played the first two Dark Souls, like playing Bloodborne has been this really interesting adventure in sort of trying to figure out where they're going with this. And um, so actually, uh, I got to the point of... And you know that way I was like, I'm not really sure... I, th I got to a point about 20 hours in and I thought, maybe this game isn't actually all that. It doesn't seem like it's... I feel like I've got its number, you know? And then I beat the spider boss on the lake. Um, anybody who's played Bloodborne will know what that means. The moon rises and I tried to, and I tried to then go to Yargul Chapel and the game just opens up in another... It like peels an entire layer off this game. And then you begin to realise what's really happening, both in terms of its lore and narrative, but also in terms of its gameplay systems and what it's trying to teach you. And I just was kind of blown away by what it was trying to do for me. Um, naturally, I'm trying to keep this as spoiler-free as possible if you haven't played Bloodborne. But I thought I had this game's measure, and then it completely changed in a way that was satisfying and terrifying and fun. And I'm still, I'm still playing through it. I'm not finished. Um, I think I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. But I'm just spending more time than is necessary because I'm, I've realised I'm actually doing so many extra things. Um, I went and had a look at a couple of guides, and it's like all these extra bits that you could do, and it's oh, I've done all of this without prompting. I just went off and did it because I wanted to explore. I wanted to find all these new things, and I was just interested in digging into it all so yeah bloodborne absolutely brilliant having a great time with it can't wait to play more another game that i have actually dead space is the only one on this list that i've actually finished 100 percent finished now that i think about it all of these are games i've played a lot of i haven't finished and i'm not really in any hurry to finish them um super mario brothers wonder is actually the game on this list that i've played the least um but immediately within an hour I was like this is one of my games of the year um absolutely adored it so i am an absolute sucker for a solid nintendo platformer um always have been i'm a big you know mario fan 
But when I look back on my favourite Mario games, I think about there are, there's now there's two games that actually sit in my head. If someone asks me at any point, what's your favourite Mario games? It's Super Mario Galaxy 2 and it's Super Mario 3D World. Um, these are two games that take the in each each level in the experiment with an idea and they will throw ideas at the game willy-nilly it has a really strong core and then it will experiment and so you'll have th themes that arise in individual levels or in individual worlds and then ah oh, we're going to try out like a joke mechanic that only works in this level or in this context and it shows a level of creativity and confidence that most most developers would kill to have when you think about when I think about games like Mario Galaxy 2, Mario 3D World, to an extent Mario Odyssey, and now Mario Wonder, you could handpick a couple of the different mechanics that they have in some of those levels, and most developers would take those two or three mechanics and make that the game. Whereas Nintendo don't do that. It's like, oh, that was a really fun dynamic or mechanic. It exists for this level. That's it throw it out you'll maybe see it again five hours later but oh they're doing another one of these levels that's so fun but rather than building in a game around these it just goes no 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 the core is mario and then we're just going to find interesting things to play around it and it's like i say there is such a, a confidence in what they're doing that they're messing around at such a ridiculous degree so the core mechanics of Mario are still there. The Wonder Flower allows for each level to evolve and change in weird and wonderful ways. And then sometimes it's just like, what is going on? I have no... My brain is just being absolutely fried by some of the stuff that they're coming up with. But critically, and this is the consistent line through all these Mario games that I've mentioned, I sit there with a grin on my face the whole time I'm playing it. It's not conceptually hard. Every now and then I'll die a little bit. But even then, they're kind of weaning away from, oh, no, death is a big deal. It's like, no, we want you to just enjoy the experience of playing the game. Um, did you find all the wonder seeds? Did you get all the coins? Did you get the flag toll? And like they have all these things which are like, this is how you 100% a level. And, oh, I didn't 100% a level. I'm going to go back and play it again. And then some of them I've just went back and replayed because the wonder seed mechanic of that level is just hilarious. And I, I want to just try that again. Um, there's one very early on where uh, you've you've bumped into like these giant hippos that you can bounce off of. And then the wonder flower just creates giant hippos everywhere. And it sort of it becomes this like platforming challenge of trying to avoid these giant, giant bouncing hippos. And then there's one with like a stampede of bulls or cows or whatever and you're like what is what is going on this is just ridiculous but it is also just really really fun um like how you thought after super mario maker one and two it's like they've kind of shot themselves in the foot they can't keep making these mario games anymore because anybody can make a mario game and then along comes mario wonder which is like we're just nah we're just kind of getting warmed up there it, it's just got creativity coming out of its ears and it's just such fun also the multiplayer in this is really really interesting because <clears throat> the online multiplayer for mario wonder is essentially dark souls multiplayer um so you can see other players 
you can see where they're going, which is really useful, because if you're trying to find a secret item, you'll sometimes see somebody on your screen doing something and go, is that a hidden block there? And then you can punch it and go into a hidden area. But also, you can leave um, little like cardboard cutouts for each other in the map, which act as messages. So sometimes you leave a, a cardboard cutout in a particular place to encourage another player to go over to this platform. It's like, why would you go up there? Oh, there's something hidden here. Or there's like, you know, an item here that you can use. And if someone dies, they can, instead of losing a life, they can try and like their spirit like can swim over to you and get revived by another player that's active. And so it makes each Mario level become this much more interesting, collaborative experience, which you're doing with utter strangers on the internet. Now, you can't uh, interrupt each other's game. You can't sabotage each other's play, but you can help each other in interesting ways. And at first I turned it on and I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be fun. I now constantly play Mario Wonder with the multiplayer on because I just like seeing other people interacting in this space, trying to solve the same things I am. And then hopefully we're supporting one another along the way. Um, it is like this really unspoken thing about what makes Mario Wonder so good is the online multiplayer. Um, really, really fascinating stuff. I'm having an absolute ball playing it and I'll probably go and play some of it after this stream ends. Let's see. Uh, the next one on the list, Yakuza 0. Um, if someone had told me a couple of years, in the last 10 years, if someone had just taken me aside and went, Tommy, you realise that Yakuza is just an evolution of Shenmue. I would have started playing these games years ago. So I am a big fan of Shenmue. Shenmue came out on the Sega Dreamcast in... Was it was it the year two thousand? I don't know. Let me. Let me what does Google tell me? Nineteen ninety nine, December 29th, nineteen ninety nine. <clears throat> uh, it was. Now, of course, the series hasn't gone that well. There was a third one in twenty nineteen that wasn't great, but it was such a an interesting concept of this open world three D game that's also a brawler that also had kind of quick time events and the like, but it was really about role-playing and simulating life. And it could be a bit too bogged down in the, the minutiae of its mechanics. So in Shenmue, you had this full day and night system. And so you would go, you would leave your house in the morning and people would be going to set up their market stalls. And then if you came back in the afternoon, they'd be doing a roaring trade in the market. And then in the evening, all the shops would shut and then some bars would open and stuff like that. So the game was very much beholden to that. And so a lot of the game took really long because you had to spend a lot of time interacting with this day-night system and the social simulation system and whatever else. And so like Yakuza is sort of saying, what if we take a lot of these core concepts and then really strip it down to probably the most interesting aspects of it or the most interesting and the most fun aspects of that ecosystem and then tell a really compelling story on top of it that's yakuza um and so i started with yakuza zero which is actually yakuza zero comes out much later in the uh development timeline um of the series um, it came out in uh, let me see I'm actually going to double check 
2015, and it is based on the engine that was used for Yakuza Kiwami, which is the remake of the original Yakuza. Because um, for context, uh, the original Yakuza came out in 2005 on the PlayStation 2. So they then remade Yakuza and Yakuza 2 as Yakuza Kiwami and Yakuza Kiwami 2 in 2016 and 2017. The same engine was then used for Yakuza 0, which is a prequel that takes place prior to the first game in the series, um, in which you play as the main titular character of the, of the or the main character of the series, the main protagonist, um, Kiryu. And then also uh, in the, as you can see on the, the, um, screenshot or the, the 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 art there um goro majima who is the fella in the eye patch um and so i've been really taken aback by how fun yakuza is because it's a it's got its it's got its fair share of problems it's clunky and in, in so many weird and wonderful ways but it's so esoterically like japanese in a way that i find incredibly satisfying um the fact that so the the one of the interesting parts about it is the whole game takes place by and large like 90 percent of the game takes place in well less so actually in yakuza zero but a significant proportion of the game takes place in two core locations so it's two open world environments you have kamarocho which is sort of meant to be like a fictional red light district of of tokyo and then um uh sotonbori which is meant to be in I can't remember, is it Osaka? Both of them are, meant, are kind of fictional entertainment districts of their respective cities. But they're these interesting locales within which storytelling can take place. And so the main narrative is really one of betrayal, of intrigue, of corporate espionage, of gang warfare, and of Kazuma Kiryu being caught up in the middle of it. Um, uh... And it then subsequently, you get more and more caught up in the reality of it. And so I'm only at a point, for those of you who've played it, I'm on chapter 11, because the game takes place with Kazuma, Kiri, uh, Kazuma Kiryu in Kamarocho. And then after a while, you actually flip over and you play as uh, Majima Goro in Sotonbari. And you're like, what the hell? Who's this guy? What's going on? And these are two very disparate storylines until 40 hours into the game, I find out how the two stories are actually interweaving. Um, ah, there we go. LB has corrected, has uh, clarified for me. Yes, um, so uh, Kamarocho is based on Kabukicho in... Kicho, I hope I pronounced that right, in Tokyo. And Sotonbari is based on Dotonbari in Osaka. Um, so yeah like the thing that I find really interesting is that the story is really well written it has a level of maturity to it and immaturity to it which I find really funny because the, the side narratives the side quests in Yakuza are dumb as fuck they're stupid and they're very funny and, and Kiryu is sort of like the gangster with a heart of gold who keeps getting caught up in these like horrendous circumstances in the main narrative and then like absolutely mental side quests that you're like what is going on and sometimes it it plays a little funnily enough to comment on what liam and wales has said in the chat yakuza still feels like a game for japan translated not a game from japan made for the west 
Yes, because it is very much when Sega started making the Yakuza series, they wanted to make something that was reflective of Japanese culture and something that is so intrinsically Japanese in its nature. And I find that really interesting because you learn a lot. Um, and some of it is leans into some of the quirky and awkward and sometimes juvenile aspects of um, Japanese culture. But um, it also is quite interesting that you learn a lot and some bits of it are quite embarrassing because it's dealing with like awkward sex stuff and but then the violence side of it is quite horrific and like I say it the tone of it shifts quite drastically but I'm quite invested in the story and I'm invested in the characters and the thing as well as LB says here I understand it's different if you've played one to one one to four before you play Yakuza 0 but it still works if you're new I can tell as I'm playing it, they're setting up characters. It's like, this person is going to be important down the line. Um, this character is going to be of relevance in a future game. But I don't know yet. But I'm already, like I said, like I really enjoy just being in that space and playing those type of games um, that it's so unashamedly Japanese in its style, but also you, you kind of learn a lot just indirectly. Like I spend a lot of time just like Googling stuff. Like, oh, why is that? Is that like a thing that actually exists? And why is this happening? And what does he mean by this? And even things like how the language changes and stuff, like how they address one another. And I learned a lot about Japanese culture just by playing Yakuza. And, but I, like I said, I'm also kind of a Shenmue fan. So when I started playing this, like, oh my God, this is just Shenmue better um i've already bought yakuza one through six because i know that when i finish zero i'm gonna start playing yakuza kiwami and then um i saw like there's been what two yakuza games came out like lag a dragon ishin came out this year and then is it like a dragon um, the man with no name and then they've got was it like a dragon infinite wealth comes out early next year and I'm already like I'm, I'm invested in these characters I'm invested in this world I'm invested in this gameplay and I know that the like a dragon games change it slightly they're more turn-based but I'm already like I want to keep going with this and I want to see where this goes um despite its occasional childish attitudes and behaviors I am still really invested in this and I just want to see where it, how it turns out and also like I want to know how this story wraps up because I know how the start, I know the start of Yakuza 1 and I'm like, how on earth do we get from where I am right now in Yakuza 0 to there? So I'm very interested to see um, where it goes. But uh, yeah, as LB says, the story of 0 is so good, so many twists and turns. There is, you'll know the one I'm talking about, there is a key moment where you finally see a tattoo on someone and the entire story clicks. And when I saw that, I was I was like, what? No, that person? Huh? And now your perception of that character and your relationship with that character is now fundamentally changed as the player because now you're asking questions that you don't have answers to yet. Um, but that moment where Kiryu and Goro's narratives actually came together for the first time was sort of, that was really exciting and also actually horrific because you had built certain perceptions of individual characters throughout the narrative and now you're like oh god 
actually have I got the wrong end of the stick here and is actually that person like much more of a horrible person than I thought they were so I'm looking forward to seeing how that ends um also just uh thinking about um what was it uh the I remember just the amount of times you end up fighting um some of the uh the the heads of the the yakuza clan as well it's just it's quite funny because some of them just don't give up and then like the fights get increasingly ridiculous and very i'm pretty sure there was an akira moment in a, in a sewer tunnel but anyway so yeah the last game on this list is legend of zelda tears of the kingdom um so i only finished breath of the wild in uh I only finished Breath of the Wild maybe four or five months before Tears of the Kingdom came out. I finally went and finished it, and I put 120 hours or something into Breath of the Wild. For context, I'm about 90 hours into Tears of the Kingdom, and for those of you who have played it, I have not done any of the main temples, because I just don't care. I've Actually, I've nearly done one of them. And then I just, I got bored halfway through it, and I was like, let's go do something else, and I just jumped. Like, wee! What? Breath of the Wild was a game that was all about the opportunity for adventure. It was sort of a manifest destiny in the sense that it actually finally satisfied something that Zelda's been trying to do for a long time, which is giving players the opportunity to look to look at any part of the world and then say, I want to go and explore that, and also be able to explore in any order that they like, in any way that they like, and particularly also with a lot of the puzzles to allow a bit of expressionism. But it was also still within relatively defined constraints, I would say to more to some extent. I feel that what Tears of the Kingdom does is it brings together so many facets of previous Zelda games in a way that is so rich for exploration. Um, they have created an entire game world which is so the it can feel overwhelming it can also feel pointless but the thing that i love about it is it's a game in which the entire story of its playthrough is unique to you because where you go the order in which you do things how you go about doing things but also when you're interested and you're when you're presented with a puzzle it is about your solution to that problem there are so many different ways when you go into a shrine, um, and of which there are many, much like Breath of the Wild, it goes, well, here's... You kind of look at it, and like in Breath of the Wild, it was like, all right, there's probably like one way to actually solve this shrine. Tears of the Kingdom, you find... Oh, I'm not I'm not really been able to fix... I, there, I think there is a, a, there is a solution somewhere, and you kind of struggle and you flail about a little bit, and then you find something that works. And the thing that's really good about it is they don't punish you for that. You go, all right, cool, you did it. Even in the back of your head where you go, that wasn't really the way I was supposed to do that, was it? That wasn't really the actual, like, whatever designer Nintendo made this didn't think of that as the solution. But also, what they often do a lot in this game is... They don't punish solutions that don't conform to their perspective. 
So sometimes you're like, oh, wow, see, if this room was designed in a slightly different way, it would prevent my, my solution from being applicable. But they don't do that because they just want you to have that time to explore and come up with your solution. And then critically, that's your solution. That's your story. And so you might talk to someone and they go, oh man, I found this shrine where you do this thing and there's this thing up here and I couldn't figure out how to... They're like, oh, I did it like this. And then they go, oh right, well I did it like this. And you notice how you don't have the same solution to it. You both solved it. You both got the coin thing or whatever. But it's your story. And I find that that the fact that they did that on the existing Breath of the Wild map and then added more to it with the underground and the overworld and the sky islands, it allowed them to create new types of puzzles. I think the, the mechanics this time with the, um, the magic hand and like the ascend ability are far more interesting than they were in Breath of the Wild. Um, like ascend as a Ascend is such a, a conceptually simple mechanic that you can just jump into a bit of geometry above you and you will appear at the next clear part of the geometry that my brain hurts when I think about it. Um, it's such a conceptually simple thing, but making sure that works successfully on a programming level, I've toyed with this so much because I'm like, what happens if I do that? What happens if I put this here and then jump down there? Does that block it or what does it do? And... I just love that it works and it just it just comes together um and that really speaks to i think kind of another strength of it is that it's a technical marvel this game runs with minimum you know a relatively smooth 20 something odd frames per second and doesn't suffer extreme frame drops in a massive open world where I can be on a sky island and I can jump off the sky island, dive down and onto the overworld, then dive into a hole that actually will take me to the underground, not a single load screen. And my brain's just like, how? I've worked on Switch hardware. I've tried to make games on the Switch. How the fuck do you do that? Like, it's, I was having fun with it as a game player. I was having fun with it as someone who is very invested in The Legend of Zelda. And I was having fun with it as a game player who just couldn't get his head around how on earth they did it. It is, um, to me, it is actually probably one of the, the most impressive technical marvels I have played in games in years. I'm still occasionally playing it going, how do you even make this work on this ha on this hardware? Like, this is, this is insane. Um... Liam says, my sis who hardly plays games loves Tears of the Kingdom. She just plays on a Switch with no problems. Like, I found I kind of, one of the things that I thought was really good about it is just so how openly accommodating it is and that you can continue to just go back and explore it in whatever way you like. Like I say, I haven't done much of the main quest. I've done so many side quests. I found all these weird and wonderful places and I feel that the game does a better job of rewarding you for this. It feels so much like a game in which the first one came out and Nintendo really paid attention to how people played the first one and said, right, we need to challenge them more, but give them more to do, give them more creative tools to play with and just allow for freedom of expression, freedom of adventure to take hold. And yes, we have a narrative and everything else, and that's great. And as a fan as well, I'm enjoying seeing how it is intersecting with previous parts of the Zelda lore as well, which is really good. 
Um, but yeah, I I actually haven't played Tears of the Kingdom in two months. I had to put it down because I was just playing it all the time. And I'm like, I have episodes to record. I have game footage to record. And it was like, I have to do this. I have to say to myself, okay, this evening, I'm going to play this game for three hours and record a bunch of footage of it because we need it for an episode. And I kept failing to do it. And I'm just like, I'm sitting there. Oh, it's nine o'clock at night and I'm somehow still on my Switch playing Tears of the Kingdom. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, it's it's just such a well-packaged experience and I'm not finished with it yet and I'm really looking forward to actually finishing it. And I won't let it be on my Game of the Year list um, for next year because I have to finish it and I've already made it my Game of the Year this year. But yeah, I was genuinely blown away um, by just how good that game is and also how clever that game is on a level that it, it anticipates and also accommodates a lot of player expression which I think is just just wonderful so yeah that's my games of the year and I'll probably have a few more in the couple of days but yeah that's that's it I have finished everything I wanted to present to you today. Um, it's just us now. And, uh, yeah, if we have any questions and the like, we can do the Q&A segment of the... We've already been going for two hours strong right now. <laughs> to the point that I've almost run out of the whiskey. That's, uh, that's doing not bad. <clears throat> Just hanging out. Me and shout out to Helen, of course. Um, Helen O'Dell, who's done a bunch of art for me over the years. Uh, you can get check out my all-important Perfect Organism t-shirt. Get it at the store, store.aingames.com. You can buy one of your own. Um, I really like this t-shirt, actually. It's came out really well. Helen, of course, always does great stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah. We've got more merch, actually. There will be another patron-exclusive t-shirt coming out hopefully in the next month or so um, Helen is literally finishing up a piece of art uh, for patrons um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks um, <clears throat> so I guess if there's any further questions we can do those um, I think the other thing is probably to give a brief hint as to what's coming um, in 2024 as well which we should probably do. Um, but uh, if people have questions, you can roll them in in the meantime as I start. There was a question from earlier, which I did say that I was going to respond to, and that was uh, Aurora Borealis had left a question that said, Curious, is solo dev going to be feasible in the coming years, I'm trying to make an FPS game, but with coding and art would be difficult. Would AI be able to do the former for me soon? So, um, yeah, like there is an increasing amount of AI tools, whether it's, you know, more, more often than not, like um, ChatGPT and GitHub Copilot, which is allowing for the, the writing of code to solve particular tasks. 
the bigger problem is whether you can get it to write entire systems and have those systems interface with a game engine correctly and then handle the minutiae of that. Um, so I think that's always going to be... That's, that is probably one of the biggest challenges for generative AI stuff. And I do think there's also an, an open challenge here. Oh, there's an open problem. And this actually comes up in tomorrow's video when we do the... Um, generative AI survey results in which there is a risk that your people will struggle to, particularly for coding side, to build their into all the ecosystems and build the whole thing together because they're so reliant on generative AI, they don't actually know the minutiae of what they're doing and learn how to actually um, uh, build a game correctly. Uh, like building games like one of the things interesting things I think we talked about this in the recent um, uh, episode of Branching Factor with Matt is that learning to write in a game engine is one thing learning to build a game in an engine is something else because you have to figure out how to build systems and systems that propagate across scenes and are able to cache and collect a lot of data and generate new assets when necessary and, and handle all these like complexities of game environments in a way that is scalable and easy for you to die to debug and what have you i think that's going to be an interesting challenge down the line we're going to see more and more generative ai tools rolling out into the industry in the next couple of years i think it's going to become increasingly pervasive i literally have been in calls with companies who are doing art stuff in the last few days who are interested in collaborations and whatever next year and i'm like well maybe we'll talk about it but as always, you need to tell me how the milk is made before we really get to, you know, I have a lot of generative AI companies knocking on my door trying to do sponsorship, but it's mostly to promote their product rather than for us to do any meaningful discourse around their product. And as I say to all of them, if you want on this channel, you have to, you have to tell me how the stuff works. Like we have to get a look under the, the bonnet as it were, because the bulk of my audience are engineers, developers themselves, and that's what they want to see, that's what they want to find out about. And I'm not interested in just shilling your product, I want to know what you're doing with your product. And of course, generative AI is in a very interesting uh, space with that, where um, I got backlash actually from doing the Convey and in-world videos because of the, you know, we're dealing with a lot of generative AI technologies that are in a legally precarious position. Not to necessarily say that in-world and convey are. Because um, actually they're mostly building their own internal models. It's not like they're basing it on existing third-party models and the like. Um, <clears throat> so it's it's kind of a... I think it's going to continue to grow and mature. And I think what we're going to see in the next year or two is, fight, is a lot of these tools are actually going to start becoming useful. Because right now, a lot of this stuff is like companies going, hey, we built this thing. And I'm like, that's useless. Like, I can't use that in day-to-day -day production. It doesn't fit into my production pipeline. You know, oh, we've got this thing that does like generative AI that can build, you know, character models or something. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then you import it into Maya and you just have a, or ZBrush, and you have a mild heart attack when you see how many polys it is. And like the composition of it, like nobody in their right mind would build this like this. These tools are going to improve, I think. Anyway, 
And I think it's got a great opportunity for people who... And I think it is for people who are making their own games and doing small stuff. Um, there's great opportunity for them to really explore it. And funnily enough, tune in tomorrow. We actually have a bunch of people. One of the things that was really interesting looking at our survey results is the disparity between generative AI being used in the professional games industry and generative AI being used by hobbyists and solo developers. S significant difference in terms of how pervasive it is in those two spaces. Um, also... Uh, Let's see, Abdul says, I watched this while revising for my KCL January exams. Oh, best of luck. I hope it goes well. By the way, you're a top three lecturer. Well, thank you. Nice to know that I'm in the top three, despite the fact I don't work there and I haven't worked there for nearly 18 months. Um, I think they still use my, last I checked, um, I think they still use some of my videos from when I taught AI planning and the intro to AI classes. Funnily enough, so here's a funny story for you. All right, after GDC, like I said, um, I went to the I went to the London Gaming Finance Summit to help pitch Trash Goblin, and that was at um, WASD WASD, which is like an indie game event that ran in you know, Brick Lane in in East London, um, and East, you know, Central East, whatever. <clears throat> And I'm hanging out in the, in, I'm actually in the industry space and I'm chatting with a bunch of people I know. And this fella comes over and he says, excuse me, are you Dr. Tommy Thompson? And already I'm like, all right, well, hang on, something's going on here because he's addressed me by my full name and my title. This is, I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I'm thinking it's going to be a YouTube thing because it happens. And also I'd just been at GDC. I had a whole bunch of people stop me at GDC to take selfies and stuff. He's like, hey, you're, you're the guy from AI and Games. And I'm like, hi, how are you? Um... That's another story, which I'll tell in a minute. But he goes, no, no, no. So me and, and he points to a group of his mates and he says, oh, we're all students at King's College. We just finished the intro to AI class where they use you in all our videos. I'm like, all right. <laughs> like, yeah, we've been following you and like watching your YouTube, watching your videos at the university to learn this class, even though it's taught by two other people, because they still kept my videos around. Um, I also won an award for being one of the best lecturers there in the time that I was there. But that's another time. Story for another time. So they're like, can we take a photo? So I ended up taking a photo with a bunch with these guys. Nice guys. It was funny. But it was just such a weird and funny experience that I'm just like, oh, right, this will be in a YouTube interaction. It's like, no, no, we know you from YouTube, from videos at King's College London. Like, what? I haven't worked there for however long. <laughs> so funny. Um, Let's see. Uh... Uh, where am I? Oh God! A lot of questions all suddenly came in. Good job, everybody. Um, yeah, Aurora. Actually, co coming back to what we we're saying earlier, like re auto retopologizing of models and like weight painting tools that would be really helpful. Absolutely. Um, Scup says Fat Shark interview in twenty twenty four. I have actually reached out to Fat Shark to say, "Yo, I'd love to do a video on." Um, Warhammer Darktide. I haven't heard back. I should probably actually find a way to list all the studios that I reached out to this year. I, I reach out to Hello Games on an annual basis and they continually never answer my emails. I did reach out to Creative Assembly not that long ago about a possible project. Um, they are currently not doing anything at the moment, um, naturally, because uh, sadly they're going through a lot of um, redundancies this is brought on, of course, by the cancellation of Hyenas. If you're not familiar, the way that 
Creative Assembly is built was essentially they have their total war side of their development um, teams and then they had their what used to be called the console side which was originally built for Alien Isolation and so that team then did um, Halo Wars 2 and I don't know if they did anything else in between but subsequently they then went off and did um, Hyenas and Sega decided to cancel that project and then they have made a lot of the developers on Hyenas redundant and so we're in this weird space where essentially the development team as it were as a, an entity not necessarily the people but as an entity that worked on Alien Isolation at that studio is now gone and that's a real shame um, I know several we haven't talked about it today but a lot of people like it's been a good year for games it's been a shit year for the industry so many people have lost their jobs and a lot of people that i know um across studios who on games that i've made videos about on games that i've played on just people that i know i know a lot of people in this space it has sucked massively and i shout out to all of you out there i know so, several of you have got jobs in the last few months and i've been liking all those linkedin posts whenever i see them or twitter or whatever it is it has been horrible. And so, yeah, I reached out to Creative Assembly about a potential idea. And I was conscious that this might be the response. And they were like, yeah, we're kind of, we're not doing anything right now because we're kind of in this weird state right now as they restructure and reorganize themselves off the back of everything that's happened to them. And yeah, uh, shout out to everyone out there. I know a few folk who I knew at Creative Assembly lost their job. I know a bunch of them still are there. Shout out to them all. I hope you're all doing great. It has sucked, but Fat Shark has not answered my emails yet. Um, Four-Eyed Fox, are you excited for LLM, large language models, being used in mainstream gaming? What is your view on the future of AI in games? The, what my view is on the future of AI in games, I'm not going to answer that entirely because there's a video coming up for that. Um, but... I think to, we saw this year, I did the two videos with Convey and InWorld, who are probably two of the most high profile examples of large language models being used in games right now. The third is probably Hidden Door, um, who I've been speaking with a whole bunch. Uh, we actually have a really exciting talk from Hidden Door uh, at GDC this year. Very excited to have that. I think Hilary Mason their CEO is going to be giving the talk. Um, she's a very uh, knowledgeable individual on applications of machine learning and generative models um, for game development purposes. But I think we're in a... As I said already, tools will continue to mature. And right now, I don't think a lot of... I think there's a few things. One, generative, a lot of large language model tools aren't there yet. Um... I had a conversation about this with InWorld and even with Convey as well, where I'm like, these tools are good, but I don't think they're there yet. Um, one of the things actually chatting with InWorld about it was they were surprised how muted my response was to it because they'd shown it at GDC this year. They showed it to a whole bunch of press people and the press people really liked it and got really excited by it. And I was like, this is good. I don't think it's great yet. Like, Origins as a tech demo is okay. I I said, if in, in my professional opinion, you shipped that demo a year too early. Because I don't think your systems are able to do the things that I want yet. 
Um, right now, there's too much of a disparity between the large language models and the control systems. Um, and that's the thing I'd really want to see in games like that. But um, they're, they're getting better at maintaining the stability of the, the narrative by actually having like overlapping systems that retain narrative consistency. They're doing better at being able to have characters who are a bit more logically consistent. They're building a lot of back-end systems for like short and long-term memory and like character profiling and stuff. And so it, looking at the stuff that those two companies are doing is great because they're, under, they're beginning to understand the assignment better. But also I think right now they're... I think when you play Origins, for example, I don't think it's quite as edifying a gameplay experience as it could be. And naturally, I always have the problem with this because I'm Scottish. Like they, um, I'm kind of talking at a character who only understands me 60% of the time. So I feel like it's going to get better. Um, and I think it is going to be really, really interesting in a couple of years' time. I think the way that I've always anticipated is we're going to get all the boom, we're going to get all the noise of a generative AI, blah, blah, blah. And rightfully so, a lot of the stuff that's coming out right now, developers are going, we could maybe use this. We don't think we can use this. There's legal ambiguities. The tech isn't built for our pipelines. Ah. And then we give it a couple of years and then we're going to see it really begin to mature into something. And a lot of that is coming from these big companies are now working with game studios and they're telling them, hey, Here's how to actually use this tech um, or how to integrate this better into how we actually make games. And then similarly, um, games will actually ship with it and we'll figure out what actually works or what is fun. Um, uh, so I don't know. I think it's going to be an interesting couple of years to see how this begins to mature, really, because I don't think it's, it's still not quite there yet, I don't think. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's 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 quite exciting. Um, that was kind of a half answer, but okay. Now got to separate the questions from the chat. Um, advocacy for universal basic income. Like every study goes out there and goes, "Hey, you know this actually works," and then governments go, "Oh, but it's just a study." Anyway, um, let's see. Uh, G says, I think handcrafted games will become more niche like organic vegetables. Like sooner or later, you'll be able to, you know, uh, sell your game at more of a premium. It's like we handmade this. This isn't just a video game. This is a Marks and Spencer's video game, you know. Um, let's see. Yeah, Joker says AI in games is often very different from what people associate with AI nowadays, deep learning, convolutional neural networks, etc. Do you think that there's a push in the industry academia to use deep learning for NPC behavior in games? Like there's always been a push in academic spaces, like even going back to my PhD, like we were talking, well, we weren't doing deep learning then because it didn't exist. It was just vanilla machine learning, like new, like training neural networks with machine learning algorithms. There's always been an appetite for it, um, but it never quite manifested. And a big part of that is, of course, that it wasn't production ready. It wasn't um, going to fit into the needs of studios. And I, I talked with studios around that time and they were like, this is cool, but it's not really something we can use yet. 
Um, and we've seen a move towards using deep learning in other facets of game development. I think that's something that's really exciting is this like silent revolution that's happened over the last seven or eight years um, where, you know, we've been able to just go, hey, we can just use machine learning to solve these problems, whether it's animation blending, whether it's texture upscaling, whether it's um, cheat detection, like all these areas that historically haven't been touched and then it goes hey what if we throw deep learning at it like oh my god um but yeah as you point out npc behavior not something you'll notice that it is consistently used in areas of real-time control problems what are the most high profile deep learning applications you can think of in games it is the forzas it is the gran turismos it's racing because it is something like deep learning like and like uh DNNs are so perfectly built for that type of problem. You know, complex, real-time, dynamic, physics-influenced control systems. Perfect for that sort of AI to, to work within. I think there's an appetite to try and start using deep learning more in... Um, in non-player character behavior i don't think it's there yet i think what is going to be interesting also is getting ways to have non-player characters be utilize machine learning in ways that actually fit with existing tools i had a really i had a couple of conversations about this earlier this year about replacing utility systems or like selector nodes and behavior trees being powered by neural nets because what if you actually get a machine to go away and train and learn the nuances of your game such that it can understand what are the correct things it should do? So rather than having a human handcraft a utility function to decide on one of eight different behaviors in a behavior tree, what if you train a neural network to figure that out? And it becomes a classifier. And it goes, oh, based on this input, it classifies it as this type of scenario. And then it goes, okay, cool, we run this subtree. And then even then, certain aspects of game development where we still use good old-fashioned game AI that maybe deep learning could could help. Um, you know, uh, I, I remember seeing work by Ubisoft on like, can we get deep learning to solve navigation for us? Because we're still using navigation meshes and navigation meshes are time-consuming and difficult to compute and difficult to manage at runtime and recalibrate and all this sort of stuff. So I feel like there's, there's plenty of potential. There's an appetite for it, certainly. Um, whether we see it in a commercial game, well, we see it in some games. Whether we see it become more pervasive, I think is going to be a uh, is going to be a more gradual thing. Um, oh, Alan Zaccone says this is why he doesn't do videos of his lectures at Goldsmiths because he doesn't want them to be used after he's gone slash dead. I like f I look forward to still getting people stopping me and going, oh wow, that video that you do for Intro to AI is great, and it's like, yeah, that was eight years ago. Anyway, um. Evergreen says it's scary how many people I know have lost their jobs. It feels very large scale. That's an evergreen message from Evergreen. Um, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> and I think also the like, you know, there's actually a lot of discussion here about um, you know people losing jobs and studios shutting down and whatever else. And it is, it's a horrid set of circumstances because a lot of it was largely avoidable. 
This is an industry that is still doing very, very well for itself, but this is an industry led by people who are making a lot of very bad business decisions because they made an awful lot of money in a very short period of time while everyone was locked in their house during the pandemic. And then they spent that money very aggressively, um, investing in new projects, but also borrowing money to then start up new projects. And now the change of the economy combined with the change of gaming habits has meant there's a saturation of product, but also a lot of companies are now feeling the pinch because they have over extended and now they are carrying business loans and the like where the current economic environment means it is not sustainable for them to do that and rather than figure out how to grow sustainably they overdid it they overextended and now and a lot of them aren't still aren't doing that badly but the most effective solution is to cancel the projects and get rid of the developers because that will save money you know, rather than, oh, we just don't have, to, we can then pay off this business loan very quickly because we're no longer having to spend all this money on um, keeping the lights on and hiring developers to do work. And look at all these live service games that are dying. <clears throat> live service games that are just falling on their arse everywhere because every company wanted to be a live service games company. Even at the time, when it was very evident in 2019, 2020, it's like this market is only capable of having so many of these existing at any one time. You can't, like, everybody keeps wanting to make their game their forever game. You know, oh, I want, we want to keep having kids tune in to play Fortnite. We want to have people still playing Rainbow Six Siege dead by daylight. You know, we want people to be tuning in to play Call of Duty Warzone on a regular basis. You can't have too many of these existing at once because it then becomes it, they cannibalize one another and some of them are too big to kill at that capacity like look at it like a couple of years ago it was Call of Duty Warzone versus Fortnite versus PUBG those three games are still good doing just fine but then everyone keeps launching another live service game to be in the mix and it's like what are you doing that's different from those and then everyone wants to be similar too, but different. And there's just not enough space for for all this stuff. You need to really try and do something a little bit. It's difficult because on one hand, if you break them from the mold too much, you might struggle to get an audience. And then if you do something that's too derivative, you might not get an audience. Like earlier this year, like uh, was it the Texas Chainsaw Massacre game came out, which is struggling because it's competing against Dead by Daylight, which has been around for so long. It's a master community behind it. Um, yeah, Liam in Wales says it happened with MOBAs 10 years ago. You know, it happened with MMOs. Same thing, like everybody wanted to create their World of Warcraft killer and then funnily enough, they're all dead and World of Warcraft is somehow still going. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's a bit of a mess. Um, as Scup says over on Twitch, don't forget the C-suite bonuses for making profit due to firings. Right, exactly. Like so many of these companies... It's not a case that they're actually losing money in the grand scheme of things. They would lose money if they did, if they behaved more ethically and operated within the current economics of the environment. Instead, they go, actually, if we chop everything off now, let all these people go kill these projects, our books will be balanced within a year. 
and everybody still gets their bonuses. And so it continues to be this, and we're seeing this all throughout society, you know, um, you know, that big corporations where the big people are, what the people at the top are taking all the money and the people at the bottom are struggling to get their mortgage, you'll be able to get their money to pay their mortgage or their rent at the end of the month. And people wonder why I work for myself nowadays. At least at this point, the only person I can really hate is myself. <clears throat> yeah, exactly, Liam. It's a loss of projected profit. It doesn't actually turn into a loss. Uh, yeah, speaking of cannibalization of markets, LB says, remember when we played Evil Dead for like two evenings? Evil Dead was fun. But... Evil Dead was fun, and, but it, it didn't seem like it would have much legs to it. And then, yeah, like how many... I don't play a lot of... I don't play a lot of online games because I don't trust they're still going to be around or they're worth the investment anymore. You know, Dead by Daylight, if it died tomorrow, then it's like, okay. I've, I'd be a bit upset, but at the same time, I've had enough of a good time of that game that I can move on. And then you have things like Call of Duty, which comes out with a glorified DLC expansion as an individual game and has rightfully been slated for it, which it's like, that was stupid. Because you're now... Call of Duty has been needing to turn itself into a permanent live service model for years and Activision have refused to do it because the amount of money they get out of it turning it into an annual um, franchise that has new releases on the regular rather than being smart about it and allowing it to grow because they, they allow it to grow in Warzone it's like why don't you let the multiplayer grow alongside it and it actually all becomes an entirely free to pay package free to play package I wonder if Microsoft will see sense and go down that route um, now that they own them. But yeah, you know, Microsoft are another prime example of this, a company that made a huge amount of money during the pandemic and then to avoid having to pay taxes and everything else, what do we do? We go and peg it in the spreadsheet as we're buying Microsoft Activision Blizzard. We're buying Activision Blizzard King, sorry, because, you know, that helps underwrite $69 billion. And we'll still let go like a thousand people across the organization or something. Like, that was when things were starting to really suck with this whole year of layoffs. Because I remember going to GDC and meeting people who are like, well, I got laid off last week. Like, oh, I met people who got laid off while at GDC. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got an email this morning. I've lost my job. Like, all right, what are you doing today? Like, uh, I'm job hunting, uh, so I'm going to go down to the expo floor and chat with these people, and I'm going to go and chat with these people, I'm going to have coffee with these people and see if I can find work. And you're like, good lord. Like, it's a little stressful for me going to GDC because I, I pay for myself to go because my company pays for me to go to GDC. So in, in a sense, I pay to go to GDC. But I'm like, right, well, I need... So I went there and I'm like, I'm having meetings because I need to make this uh, a worthwhile expense so that this turns into work that pays for me to go to GDC next year so that it becomes a self-sustaining thing. It's like, it pays for me to go because then the exposure gets me more work, um, which has happened. There's some projects that have kicked off because I met people at GDC this year, which is great. But yeah, just chatting to people who are just... I'm like, yeah, you're looking a bit of a funk today. And they're like, yeah, I just found out this morning I lost my job. Why? No. Oh, I was just one of the thousand people who got let go. The one of 20 people who got let go. Nothing personal. You're like, God, this sucks. 
Ugh. Well, that's an upbeat uh, note. All right, we should maybe look to start burrowing towards the end of the stream for tonight. <clears throat> so, yeah, line must go up. Indeed, Scup. Line must go up. <clears throat> uh, right, so let's talk a little bit. I haven't prepared anything special for it, but let's talk a little bit about next year. Um, so, we have a bunch of video projects I've already got started. There's two big things really to talk about. Um, so, first of all, AI Games turns 10 years old. It's 10 years old. This March. The first ever video of AI and Games, which I can never remember the actual date until I look it up, which is what I'm doing right now. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Is it March 3rd? First episode of AI and Games published March 2nd, 2014. So we are very close to the 10 year anniversary of the very first video. Can I just go out my way and point out I never once anticipated we'd be still doing this? You know, I've told this story before, but like the first three, four years of this channel, they had like three or three thousand subscribers or something. I was quite happily in my own little corner doing my own wee thing. Hey, I've got an audience. This is kind of cool. Fast forward to now, we're at 206,000, according to the screen thing over there. 206,000 subs. I run a company that's named after the YouTube channel, for God's sake. So it's been a very weird thing to be in this space. So we have a number of videos lined up. Not all of them will come out in March, but we will have a season of celebratory videos um, in 2024, starting in March. We have a few things lined up. There is a special, there's going to be two episodes of Design Dive, which are kind of, well, they're Design Dive or they're AI and games, I haven't decided yet. Basically, we're going to do two things. Um, somebody already asked this, comp, said this comment earlier, and we're going to do an entire video on it. What is the next 10 years of AI for video games going to look like? But also, I'm going to do a retrospective on what have I learned and what are what are the core themes that I have I have learned from spending a decade doing this? Um, I mean, on one th one hand, the thing I learned is I can make a career out of it. But what have I actually learned about this? And what are the themes and trends and concepts that I've learned um, in terms of technology, in terms of design, in terms of game development? So we've got that video, and then we also have another video on where do I think the future is going, and where do I how do I think it's going to turn out. Um, I think it's been interesting to watch how the current state of the art is. Like a lot of this stuff did feel like that it was going to become. Um, I did think it was going to become. Um, it was going to evolve in some of the ways that it has, but I also didn't foresee some of the other ways. Um, 
Just to quickly comment, Joker says, do you think using more and more AI tools for creating games could potentially offset the cost of game dev and reverse the trend of $70 games in the future? It might reverse offset the cost of game development itself. I don't think it would reverse the trend of $70 games because now AAA studios, AAA publishers have established that people are willing to pay $70. So they'll keep making you pay $70 because they've been wanting to up that price for years. Um, whether it's EA, Activision, Nintendo doing it, uh, Capcom have said that their next games are going to be going up in price. They figured out people will pay, so I don't. It might actually offset production costs for certain types of projects, not all, but certain types of games. But I don't see it reversing the trend of the actual cost to the consumer, because the publisher will still try and see if they can um, have their cake and eat it. Um, that's my opinion. So yeah, we're going to do these two uh, looking back and looking forward. We have a special episode of the history of AI in games. Um, so that is actually, there's going to be a special episode of the history of AI in games, which is actually not, which is actually intrinsically linked to the origins of this YouTube channel, but it's actually about Alan Turing. Um, and it's a semi-personal story about my relationship to something related to Alan Turing's love of games and how I wound up doing this. So we'll talk about that. That's going to be a special episode. Um, let's see. We're doing a special retrospective. We're going back to one of my earliest episodes and... Uh, well, I'll kind of give it away a little bit. We're going to be doing a retrospective on fear, but I've got a very special guest who has just agreed to do it with me. Um, I won't say who it is, but we've actually got a very special guest coming in to talk about the creative, the, the actual making of Fear and its AI. And that's going to be probably our flagship like 10 year anniversary episode. And then the last big anniversary thing I'm doing is AI in Games episode 75 is an episode I have been holding off doing for 25 episodes. Back in episode 50, I made it yeah, Alien Isolation Revisited. And if you ever go back and look at the pinned comment, I said there was two videos I could have made here. There was this and there was something else. And this one is going to be the other thing. And it is an episode that I actually have been working on slowly for two years. And we're going to put that out as the celebratory 10-year anniversary of AI and Games. It's um, going to be pretty I, I i'm excited i'm excited um alan i'm not saying and i'm saying something was a jo might be jo might not be jo could be jo uh i actually need to book the calendar and the calendar in for the interview but we're we're doing it in january um so We've got that, but yes, AI in Games 75 is going to be a big one. and I'm going to be working on it for the next three months if I haven't. Actually, I've already started working on it a little bit. Um, so that's going to be a big one. The other big thing that is probably going to happen is next year, I'm going to be investing... AI in Games will probably... The main series is probably going to come out less frequently, but I'm going to be doing deeper dives into topics and doing stuff that I have. I'm going to just... Rather than going, this year I did something different. I did a lot of shorter episodes that I thought were just fun side journeys. So if you look at things like A Plague Tale and Into the Breach and Halo, they weren't as deep or as complex as some of the others. If you look at the two 
I started and ended with this year. The Last of Us Part 2 and Marvel Spider-Man were very deep technical design deep dives. The other episodes this year were much lighter affairs. I've decided that next year we're just going to go deeper. And these are going to be probably bigger, more complex episodes. They're going to take longer to come out and they're going to be things I'm working on more gradually. Um, there will be at least one or more episodes on The Sims because I was actually working on a Sims episode this year and then I paused working on it because Mark Brown did his Game Maker's Toolkit episode in The Sims and I'm like, all right, well, now it just looks like I'm following him. Although I've watched his video, it's very good. We're going way deeper than what he did there. Like, he gave a high, he gave a high-level overview of the entire franchise. I'm looking to do a multi-part series on each individual game because we've got, I've got huge amount of information to go through and like how the sims works so i think the sims will be a really fun one but we're going to be doing other games as well um i'm also trying to tie into some of the stuff we've got some bangers at gdc this year actually have they announced the sessions can i actually talk about this he says quickly jumped on the gdc website no that's the back end I, i'm not supposed to, i can't show you that um I know that they published some of the schedule. Let's see. Oh good, they have actually talked about, they have actually published some of these. Um, so we might be doing some of these as actual episodes, I'm tempted. Um, so this year at GDC, we're going to have a deep dive by Daniel Brewer from Digital Extremes on the evolution of AI in Warframe, which I'm already like, yo, can we do a video? Uh, we've got Call of Duty at GDC this year. We've also got Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League this year. Um, and I'm very excited for both of those. Um, but yeah, we maybe get around to doing those things. <clears throat> Alan asked, did you attend the pop-up thing Maxis organized in Soho for the new expansion of The Sims? No, I heard about it, but I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, not really my cup of tea, but uh, yeah, it was, it was quite funny to see that kind of pop-up. Um, Liam says, oh, any chance you could talk to Timothy Kane one day? I mean, maybe I could probably actually reach out to him and maybe have a chat at some point. Um, anyway, where was I going? Yeah, so we're probably doing, we're going to do The Sims at some point next year. We've got some special episodes for AI and Games 10th anniversary. So there's at least four or five videos that are going to run probably from March through to around June or July that we're going to run all these episodes kind of celebrating 10 years of AI and Games and then it's back to business as usual. Um, the next episode of Design Dive is about Bloodborne and I'm already knee deep in it. Um, that will hopefully come out probably in February. Uh, AI 101 is going through a subtle change. AI 101 is also going to be, there's going to be a new version of AI 101 coming out next year, which is actually influenced by Patreon feedback on how to, on, on like ideas on how we can take that project further. Um, so this was something that was suggested to me by the production team at on Patreon months ago and then I started working on it I scrapped it I restarted it and so it's going to be a we're going to be doing like a kind of new sub-series of AI 101 which keeps within the field of AI 101 but it's actually a little bit more it's actually a little bit more fun and it's a little bit different so we're going to do the first episode of that um 
probably in January at this point. I think that might be my January episode. That and the design dive is currently like the, the, in, up in the air for like the February video. Uh, Evergreen, have you seen the recent AI update for the tactical shooter game ready or not? I can't say I have. I have not been keeping an eye on that game at all. Um, let's see. Uh, what else have we got? Ooh, right. Uh, I keep getting asked, when am I going to... Teaching any sort of teaching. If people want more educational content from me, wouldn't it be great if you could do a deeper dive, do tutorials, do lecture style videos, do that kind of content. Um, trying to build up a infrastructure that allows for me to do that consistently and allows for me to do that in a way that is sustainable has always been a challenge. Um, as a result, in order to... Um, try and bring this together and try and make this happen. I plan on running a crowdfunding um, project for basically what would become AI and Games' new offshoot, which is basically the same thing as we do now, but it is lecture material, it is tutorial material, it is professional level education done as either online courses or done as actual just fully available YouTube videos. But in order to get that to where I want it to be, I'm going to crowdfund it. Um, and we'll see whether we can make that happen. We will announce the crowdfunding probably in the spring and then actually run the funding event in the summer, I think. That's the plan. Um, I still have a lot of work to do on putting all that together. But uh, yeah... Um, have your pockets and your wallets ready uh, because what we really want to do is essentially finance the start of what could become an entire separate project of regular videos of entire courses of content being released on classic game AI, on machine learning, on cl just classic artificial intelligence in general, programming um masterclasses, tutorial videos, tutorial documents, a whole thing. I have a whole plan for this. I have a syllabus of a couple of hundred hours worth of content, but I can't make that by myself. I will go crazy um, because also it has to be developed in chunks. I don't just release a video and then make another one. It's this is 20 hours of material as one concept, and then we drop them as huge chapters. So. That is something that I do want to try and do next year. I am currently in the Kickstarter planning phase. I'm going to try and run it in Kickstarter. I'm currently in the planning phase for that, putting it all together. It's a lot of work, um, but we'll hopefully announce something in the spring. Uh, so yeah, essentially the pitch is if AI and games has been the last 10 years, then this other thing will become part of the next 10 years and so AI and games will kind of evolve into two separate things the edutainment side of it which is this and then the actual proper education side of it which would be um, the other project which it has a name but I'm just not calling it what it's actually called yet because I like to keep these things to myself sometimes I like to play close to my chest anyway right on that note I think it's time to start wrapping up um 
I realised there was actually a question. Uh, I realized, uh, Neil's actually asked me a question in the Discord server and I forgot to answer it earlier. Um, what game that came out this year do you think was the most notable for its AI systems? I actually don't know because I don't think I played enough games from 2023 to be able to comment on it. But what was my favourite AI and games video I made of this year? It's probably... It's a toss-up between A Plague Tale and Marvel's Spider-Man. I just really liked the Plague Tale video. I was just really happy with how that came together. I felt really content with it. But also the Spider-Man one was an episode I've been putting off for a long time because it was such a complex topic to tackle. Anybody who's watched the video, if you look in the video description, it is that talk is, put, is compiled from 12 different GDC talks and then a bunch of additional interviews and everything else. I had to pull together so many resources to make that one video. It was quite intimidating. But every time I watch that ridiculously pretentious Marvel Cinematic Universe style AI and games intro, it gives me goosebumps. And I get the first time I saw it with the music in the edit, excuse me, and then the the logo coming into place, I got full on goosebumps and I thought, oh, yes. Like, as a, I forget what we am. This works with a camera. As a comic book nerd, as one can tell from the bookshelf behind me, I've never actually done a video on a Marvel video game until now. Um, I did Batman way back in episode two, and I've never really done comic book games since, because most comic book games historically are not very good. Um, so it was really nice to be able to do an episode about Spider-Man, which is a character I have a lot of love for, even when he's... Is he's sucked at times. Those of us who, well, I mean, I started reading Spider-Man during the Clone Saga in the 1990s, which, yeah, you have to be a certain age and a certain level of dedication to appreciate that. But anyway, so yeah, that probably answers that question. All right. Let's start looking at wrapping it all up. Because um, we've been going strong, actually. This has been, how long have we been streaming? Just shy of three hours. That is intense. Um, right let's wrap it up then thank you all so much for tuning in for our end of year stream it's been good fun uh, thank you for all the questions and general comments I've really appreciated it and uh, I hope you all have a very good holiday break wherever you are in the world and whatever you wind up doing I'm going to be after we have one more episode of the channel coming out tomorrow, we have an episode of Artifacts. It's going to be our generative AI um, survey results after that. I am taking a break for a couple of weeks and then I'll get back into the swing of things um, in 2024. Although I might jump on and do my final live stream um, to complete my Doom run for 2023. I still have an episode and a half to finish. But yeah, with that, thank you very much, everybody. Have a great break. Thank you all for your continued support of all my nonsense here on AI and Games. Stay safe, take care, and I'll be back. The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson, with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yoon. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge, the logo and thumbnail are is thanks to Helen O'Dell. Special thanks to Shraddha Gupta and Phoebe Trigg for additional production support, and of course, to all of you out there listening. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we will be back.